Can you sail under the command of a pirate? Or can you not? You don't listen, do you? I don't think you ever really hear me. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It stuck with me. I kept coming back to it, just trying to figure out where in the world we had gone so wrong that it had ended up here. Well, I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Why, Johnny Ringo? You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? We are not here, Ian. Failure to communicate. Some man you just can't read. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. You don't tell your puppy how to cut the electorate. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Oh, yeah. Are you not That's entertained? You are you not Just know why you are here. Hey, and welcome everybody to the Pirate Professor Podcast. This is your captain speaking. This is actually a pretty cool uh, episode because today is uh, making kind of a uh, foray into the it's a evolution into the podcast. It's not just me rambling, which is not something I really wanted to do to begin with. So um, I'm bringing up somebody else on here's a... Probably one of the most interesting human beings I know. So, from that perspective, um, it's a long one too. We're going to talk. We ended up talking for probably a solid two and a half hours. So, sit back and relax on this one. Uh, and I guess you want to know who that person is. That would be the one and only David Holloway. David Scott Holloway, who was a classmate of mine uh, in college back in the 90s late 90s and i'm sorry early 90s man i'm old and has gone on since college to um be an award-winning photographer and he's legitimately gone all over the world taking photos and 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 shot and published photos for uh really the biggest public you know some of the i don't know if most of is the right word but a whole lot of the biggest publications on the planet. So, uh, at least in the United States. But on top of that, he's just a legitimately cool guy. Um, you know, so we talk about everything from his days in college, which is kind of why I'm bringing this in because he started with humble beginnings. So it's sort of wherever, you know, for the students I've got today, wherever you think you are capable of, I guarantee you, um, He's got he's got something to say that would probably um, it could inspire you. Uh, he's you know he basically went from uh, living homeless on campus, being chased by the police, 
uh, for essentially being a vagrant uh, to travel in the world with Anthony Bourdain and 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 um, and and Jane Goodall uh, and taking you know some fairly famous photos that you don't know that he took probably. So that being said, how are you guys doing today? Um, oh, I guess uh, one, more, one, one more thing about that. Uh, I'm assuming, because we were talking on WebEx, and so I'll be posting a video of this on my YouTube channel as well, which you can just look it up as Billy Reader, R-E-E-D-E-R, and and watch it there. The problem is uh, living in rural America in the great old-fashioned digital divide, I think our internet connection wasn't so hot. So I was here in Arkansas, and he was in New York. And so if I'm guessing who had the lousy internet connection, I'm going to go with me. So I'll try to do something else. I may I may end up setting a second uh, studio up at the my office at the university, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, from there, what else do I have to say to you? I don't know. So yeah, there's some points where the audio gets a little messed up, but just hang in there. It comes back around and we talk about everything from Dave starting out in uh, high school, picking up a camera for the first time to, uh, his experience, you know, as being a photographer at presidential debates in the past and some kind of his, his, uh, perspective on what he watched last night which was the first trump biden um debate if you want to call it that um i have my own ideas about that so we're two old friends and so the conversation is pretty informal it's just like it's just a couple of friends talking and because that's exactly what it was so with that being said i am not going to give you any long, big philosophical anything today because it's long enough as it is. I'm going to play a song from the old college band Monster Zero. And the um, Dave ran in this circle too, and the uh, bass player and the guy who honestly wrote most of the songs, Dave, uh, Jason Hutto, which I have featured multiple times before on this podcast. He was uh he was Dave's roommate, so I just think it's only fitting that we bring him them him into the conversation. So with that said, I'm gonna go change over, swap over, segue over with Pickle by Monster Zero, and then we'll just pick up mid conversation with Dave and I. Hope you guys are having a wonderful day.
teaching is one of those things that if if at least for if you're lecturing you kind of want to have an audience so you got to be able to play off other people and uh, i was just mm-hmm. like uh I, w- I was i started getting bored halfway through the powerpoint myself and <laughs> i was just like right. and i'm just like I got to do something. And I was like, okay, when I first started doing this, I, I wanted to like start bringing in people I know and just generally interesting people that I, I think I was like, I need, I need Dave. And then, so I was like, oh, who else can I get? So I, I ended up scheduling several people in the same day. Have I connected you? Oh, really? Okay. So did I connect you with Alice driver? Yes. And she's on my list now. So it okay, great. Funny, funny thing about Alice is she's in Arkansas right now. Um, so she's up there visiting her I heard uh her folks. And let me look at this floating panel view. I'm trying to, there we go. I'd rather have that view. Um yeah, she's in Arkansas. Yeah, so she's she's at OARC right now. And so I was like, hey, you want to try to do one of these, you know, while you're still in town? And she's like, well, I would, except, you know, the the internet is terrible in OARC. So it'd be like dial-up speed. So oh. like, it couldn't only do it. I was like, well, you know, just come to tech and you know, sit down and socially distance across a table or something. And she's like, yeah, I'm kind of busy this week. She's like, can I go back to Mexico? And then you do it there. And I thought, and I thought it was pretty funny that she has to go back to Mexico <laughs> in order for us to do that. Uh, that's amazing. But yeah, so uh, yeah, I think she's. Did she tell you what she's working on? Uh, she's been working on, and like, I guess they're continuing her story with the immigrants and working in meat processing plants and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hear Oliver? Yeah, it's okay. Hey, <laughs> he's in class right now. I don't know what he's talking about, but he's just like talking to his mom. Kiddo, he's yeah. Heard him. I never can hear him over this. Oh, that's fine. Kiddo, kiddo is more than welcome to join the conversation. He's got a lot to say. Yeah, he does. How old is he now? Ten. And do you, do you feel Amazing. do you like do you feel like you're that age now? Like that you have ten year old? Well, I actually I was thinking about this this morning. It's kind of wild because uh, at home I would be considered really old dad right but in new york i'm solidly in the middle yeah like to have a 10 year old and i'm 49 years old uh-huh. yeah yeah you should have a, you should have a kid in college right now right right i have friends at home who have grandkids yeah. <laughs> can't even <laughs> but then it's kind of wild like oh yeah my son's the same age as your grandkids that's really weird yeah i was telling uh, this it's like it's hard to misbehave when i'm in arkansas because i don't have anybody that's my age that's still willing to do that kind of thing you know i go down to texas mm-hmm. and it's still it's i guess it's a little bit more like there you know, people don't have kids or they have them older you know they're still more willing to go out and hang out and go do things <clears throat> at night and here it's like basically you get out of college and you're supposed to get a job and get married and then have you know babies as soon as humanly possible and then you go to soccer and then you go to soccer games and you you know you do these things and that's how you spend your day so i I like that stuff but it's like 
what I realized was I thought that um, as a parent, I would have a lot of influence over my kid. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, we're going to go to jujitsu together. Yeah, we're going to go skateboarding together. It's going to be awesome. And he has no interest in those things. Uh-huh. And it's it's actually been really good for me because uh, what what it's done is it's made me realize that I have to be able to identify his interests and mm-hmm. then I have to like educate myself and pursue those in some way. So like I'm still learning. Right. I think a lot about um, when I was a kid and I would like see videos or read about skateboarding stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony Hawk's dad was always around. He wound up becoming like an organizer of skate contests in California uh-huh. because his son, that's what his son did all the time. Yeah. And on some level, like it became, you know, what he was doing. His son's the one who became famous because of it. I mean, his son became famous because right. he's a skateboarder, but. So it's Oliver into. But he definitely enabled it. So it's Oliver's thing. Uh, dinosaurs and and now video games like he's the kind of video games he's interested in are really I find it compelling Mm -hmm. because he loves these games where they're sort of like they're sort of like Sims games where you have to um, like he has one he's playing now uh, where you have to create an aquarium as a business Okay, and then you have to like do things where you have to like monitor the tanks. You have to know that certain fish can, you know, only operate within this temperature, and then they eat these kind of things. So you can't put these things together, and you know, there's just like a ton of amazing rules. And the ultimate guide is—I mean, the ultimate goal is that you're running a business that you want to grow and be profitable. So it's a little bit more than spectators. Right. <laughs> it's super it's also like a video game in slow motion. Yeah. Because you get you don't get like um you know that like winning isn't blowing up the other ships. Right. Winning is like teaching this business to grow. Right. And there's one I have I only have Max around the house, mm-hmm. but the whole way that it started is he started watching this YouTube channel about a Jurassic World game because he's, you know, totally obsessed with dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So he started watching this video game about this uh, Jurassic World game that's only available on PCs. Uh-huh. And so it's been like kind of a struggle because I was like, I don't even know how that works. Right. Like, okay, you can save up some money. And it, he was really diligent about it. He started, uh, uh, like in our neighborhood, we have... a like a movie night on the oval yep. and he started selling cookies and lemonade and he got his friend Rocco to go in with him and Rocco like sort of runs lemonade and Oliver runs cookies. And uh-huh. uh, we were, we were testing recipes and his mother uh, steered him, you know, she, she taught him about business. She's like, okay, you have to like, you know, figure out what your expenses are. And then, you have to figure out how much each cookie is going to cost you mm-hmm. and then how much you can sell it for to make a profit. And then at the end of the night, 
when you figure out how much money you've made, then you have to subtract the profits and then you have to reinvest some of your money into your business for the next week. Right. And so he started doing that and uh, they got rained out a few times, but like, you know, one of the nights they both pocketed $65 after paying all their expenses and reinvesting in their next week. Wow. Just, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm, you know, I wouldn't hate it, but uh, business is like a weird thing. Cause I'm not any good at it. Right. Uh, but it's also hey, whatever. Like I, I, I feel I'm reassured by the idea that uh, he has a strong enough personality to know what he's interested in mm -hmm. and not be so concerned with what his dad's interests are. Right. So I think that's a strength. I'll go with that. Okay. I think my parents are the same way. Like my parents were just like, they had no idea you know, what to do with me. David Sedaris said this really amazing thing uh, that I think about all the time, but he was, he said that with his parents, uh, he was like, uh, like they were farmers and he was a giraffe that they were given and <laughs> yeah. they had no idea what to do with the giraffe. So they just hooked it up to a plow. Okay. Well, they just don't know. That's, That's how I felt with my parents. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I will know what to do with my giraffe. I am have been hardcore about not giving people advice on parenting or giving any sort of insight because, well, <laughs> not. <laughs> so, but I'm going to go with mm. what you said. I, you know, I'm going to break here for a second because I realize probably right now we possibly have a handful of like 20 year olds watching this and they're like okay i don't even know who uh -oh. this guy is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, i didn't know that we i didn't know we we're actually watching this right now i thought we were just going to record something we are yeah, we are but you know just let it run <laughs> you know okay right. full yeah. like joe, joe rogan and just like talk about anything and anything um so for yeah for those <laughs> oh man do the kids watch joe rogan i have no idea i watched last Sorry. night the joe rogan uh interview with um jamie fox yeah it's so good it's just so good because they're just like goofy old friends like they both kind of started out in comedy about the uh -huh. same time i actually and now they're both like so i, I make a lot of 12 hour drives to south texas and i ended up like I can't listen to music that long, so I've gotten into podcast. And Rogan is actually one of those guys I just really sort of enjoy listening to. And I guess I fit the demographic. But yeah, right, totally. it's, it's that. He just sits around and he, he talks to people like they're just friends. And um, mostly I just like he has some really interesting people on there. Um, yeah, agreed. I, I, I like Joe Rogan a lot. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to do a project called The Toughest Man in Comedy. Yep. Because I don't know if you remember, he had like that big beef with Carlos Mencia like 15 years ago. Okay. But he was, you know, he was already like, you know, serious about jujitsu training, uh -huh. serious about boxing and kickboxing and stuff. And I see all of those instances, like I saw him, uh, him and like a few other people like outside of uh, a club one night. Mm -hmm. And all I could think is like, Man, this is so crazy because that fucking goofy fucker could beat up anybody out here on the sidewalk. I don't even think they realize it. Yeah. Hey. But that whole thing with Carlos Mencia, I just was like, no, 
Joe Rogan's definitely going to beat him up and he's going to get blacklisted from everything. And now it's sort of turned the other way. Uh, like nobody knows who Carlos is anymore. And Joe Rogan's like, he's rich. Yeah. Now he's, uh, he, he's moved to Texas as well. So like, you know, he's basically my neighbor. Oh, he did. Yeah. He moved to Austin. Oh, nice. Like it was, uh, like he went from LA and I think he just, he'd been talking about it. Like he's, you could see he, he had a growing love affair with Texas. And then when all the yeah, yeah he likes to go hunting. He likes to be out in the yeah, and it was he likes the personality, yeah. all the Navy SEALs, and all the you know that kind of mentality. And then he was just like, uh-huh. I think we're going to move to Texas, and they did it in like a month apparently. Like he decided to move to wow. Texas and then just did it. So yeah, so yeah, he's in Austin now. That's awesome, That's crazy. So by the way, I'm going to go back and do the thing I still haven't done is introduce who you are. Like, hey, everyone, this is David. Oh, yeah. <laughs> talked about that. I'm going to stop talking about my kid. That's all right. We'll talk about Rogan and kids. See, it's the same thing. We're just old friends. We're just catching up. Uh, so David Scott Holloway. So that's another thing. When I was talking to Alice and I, uh, I was like, hey, you don't know me. But Dave Holloway told me, uh, you know, I should we should we should know each other. I just messaged her. And she's like, who's David? Dave Holloway. And I went. And I sent her the website, and she was like, oh, David S. <laughs> She's like, I've never known him without his full name. It's, like, it's just Dave. So uh, for those of you listening, Dave and I were roommates. Or no, we weren't roommates. We I hung out in his room a lot uh, with him and Hutto. Lovers. We were classmates back in college. And uh, we, had, we just kind of ran in the same circle and ended up becoming friends. And then one of the things that I... Like my first memory, one of my first sort of memories of you is just sort of sitting back. Is like, I think that guy's a little bit insane, so I think I like him. Wonderful. It was just sort of like, <laughs> it was like. So Dave was always the photographer, and so these days he is. You're in living in New York, living in the photography world, and you've been doing it pretty much since college, right? So you graduated college. I, re- I remember specifically because we graduated in the same time. You had a camera cleverly hidden in your gown and like a little trigger. Oh, yes. And you're oh, like, yeah. with the thing sticking out. Going, click, click, click. <laughs> yeah, I have an awesome photo of me walking across the stage. Uh-huh. So I don't know if you remember, but like when they read you know, you wrote out your name yep. and then it was given to them and then they read the thing. Yep. Uh, so my middle initial is S. My middle name is Scott. Uh-huh. In the thing, I wrote David Slacker Holloway because <laughs> we had a friend, Crystal Bryant, who always called me Slacker. Uh-huh. And so I put that in. And so then when I'm walking across the stage, they read David Slacker Holloway. And you could just see their faces like, <laughs> really? Uh, uh, I have a photo. I'm like, it's like I've got the remote in my hand, the trigger in my hand, and then like the photo of my hand reaching out, and then just like them holding the diploma and just like looking at me, like really, oh no, this is what we have to deal with. I got you know that was a fitting end to your time at Tech. Let's be honest. No, that actually wasn't the end. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to give any names away, but I, uh, several people have brought this up to me recently. Uh-huh. I uh, I liked to play pranks. Yep. And one of my favorite pranks, which is a terrible, terrible thing to do, I hope every one of you tries to prank me in this way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I got an internship in DC right after I graduated. And, uh, as an intern, I had access to the postage machine, uh-huh. like send out all the mail Yep. and you could print barcodes on the, did I send one of these to you? No. I don't know if I did. I don't think I was that mean to you. <laughs> uh, you could print barcodes on the envelopes and make them look super professional. Yep. So I made all of these envelopes that said something like uh, National HIV Testing Institute and, you know, Washington, D.C., and had a barcode on it, looked pro. And then I printed an envelope. I mean, I printed a letter where inside it, it said in huge letters, positive. And then fold it up. So if you hold it up to the light, you can see the word positive. through. But then when you open it up and look at the letter, it says something like, I'm positive. You're going to think this is hilarious. And then I just wrote a letter catching up with them. Uh, but the thing is, when I left school, I didn't have most people's addresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I sent them to their parents' houses, which was gosh, really great. <laughs> so I have a friend who went to Fayetteville. He was still in school. And I sent it to his parents' house. And he had recently been tested uh-huh. and his dad got the letter and his dad like obviously like looked at it at the light was like oh no and then called him and was like look you got some mail here at the house and whatever uh-huh. my friend was like oh i'll uh i'll you know i'll get it in a couple of weeks when i come home he's like i don't know it seems kind of important i think uh-huh. we should uh-huh. do this and then he's like yeah oh, okay all right well whatever and he had already gotten his results, but he was like, I don't know, maybe there's something. Yeah, okay, open it. His dad opened it. And then every time that I saw his dad after that, he was like, Dave, I didn't forget what you've done. <laughs> so he was like always super like, oh, yeah, you're that kid. You're that. And then another friend, uh, another of our classmates I sent one to, uh, he told me that his mom, like, framed it and put it up in their house for years. She thought it was so funny. <laughs> and then another friend who was still at tech, I sent it to him and uh-huh. he told me recently that he, you know, went to the post office, got the letter and then was so nervous that he went in the nearest bathroom and sat in a stall and like shook and wept for like, you know, a long time before he could get the nerve to open up the letter. So all these people, I totally expected all of them to like at some point plan some dastardly demise. Right. There's there's a thing to like. Yeah, you're you're saving up for a a healthy dose of karma. (laughs) (laughs) Who was it that? uh, Who was it that was arrested by postal uh, agents recently? Oh, it was um, someone famous. Yeah. it was uh, 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 um, Trump's old campaign guy. Uh, what's his face? He. Um, oh, oh, Bannon. Bannon, yeah. Was it Bannon? Yeah. Yeah, it was Bannon. Yeah, he was arrested on his boat or someone's boat. Yep. Well, uh, one of those same people that I sent up <laughs> one of those letters to, I was also making postcards. Mm-hmm. And this is 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, I downloaded a picture off of the internet. 
uh, I don't know if this, I don't even know what, uh, what's appropriate to talk about in here, but it was a photograph, a very early internet photograph, super low resolution of one man taking a dump on another man's chest. <laughs> and I thought it was so, so funny. I printed it out. I made a postcard and I sent it to a friend of mine. That friend got a call from the post office saying, uh, you know, got a summons, you got a summons to the post office and then called them and they he said they're being super cagey. They wouldn't tell him. They go, look, the, you know, the person's not going to deliver this. Uh-huh. You have to come pick it up. And then he went down there and they had it in like a Ziploc bag with a thing on it that said evidence. And they wouldn't give it to him. They wouldn't even let him touch it like the real thing. Uh-huh. They're showing it to him in the bag and they were grilling him on trying to figure out who sent it because oh I'm sure it broke some sort of indecency, right? you know, rule. Uh, but those were, those were like, you know, postal agents. And I'd forgotten all about that until Steve Bannon was arrested. And, and like, I was like, whoa, those guys might have come and got me if he would have ratted me out. Could have come and arrested you off your skateboard. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Uh, Are there, is there anyone skating at Tech? Is that a thing? It's, yeah. It, but the thing is, you know, when you were there, it was, you know, it was hardcore against the rules. Now it's, yeah. now it's just like a form of transportation. Like I don't see anybody doing like that's awesome. I don't see anybody doing like cool skating. They're just like going down the sidewalk, mm-hmm. but they're not you know that's awesome doing anything else. So um, we had a couple of semesters where everybody they had all those little scooters, the mm-hmm. scooters and all that. Um, they're not there anymore. But yeah, I've, I've got an electric kick scooter now. It's kind of my favorite thing in the world. Yeah, and that, so those got real popular for a little bit, and but I think the yeah they got tossed off campus for whatever reason i don't really know why but oh so um, hey real quick shooting is a crime let's talk about photography let's talk about photography let's let's for you here's one of the things i want to bring up about you especially for my good old kids at tech um you grew up in oklahoma and waldron and ended up coming to tech and now you're kind of at the top of your game or at least top of somebody's game. Uh, let me refer, okay, let me refer. Game, right? That's going all right. You're having a good time. We'll put it that way. You've you've got to do interesting things. So, um, and at one point, I want you to tell the story about losing your your press pass to the White House. Um, and then, oh, yeah. And then I want to talk about the debate from last night because you're one of the few human beings on the planet oh, because I actually got to sit. You've actually got to be in the room for those things in the past. So, mm-hmm. first of all. Can for my students now, can I give them like a rundown of like your past and kind of how you got from point A to Manhattan? Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, so I graduated high school, Walton, Arkansas, and uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. I always assumed that I was going to become a professional skateboarder, and um, I was. I was photographing some then. Um, I, you know, had a, a, had some pictures in Trash Magazine, and but nothing good. Like when I look back at those files now, I'm just like, you know, they were negatives. When I look back at like the pictures I have of the pages from Trash and so I'm like, oh, those are all terrible. Like the skating's really good, but the 
photos are garbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had a couple of incidences that happened that were really transformative. One is I was skating curbs uh, near this grocery store in Waldron, and I hear all the sirens and I see smoke, and um, there's a house on fire. So, like, I skate over there and I'm standing there watching, you know, the firemen show up and mm-hmm. everyone's going. And the editor, Michael, the editor of the, the local paper, the Waldron News, was a volunteer fireman. And so he's working. Mm-hmm. And then he sees me there and he's like, David, my camera's in the front seat of my truck. Go get it and, you know, take some pictures. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, awesome. And so I go get his camera out of the thing and I'm you know, trying to figure it out. And the house, it's like a big fire and the firemen are like, you know, working. And it was awesome because I had total access. Mm-hmm. You know, the firemen are like, yeah, shoot this. Right. You know, in here, whatever. And it was, it was really like, it was really awesome because the next day in the paper, whatever day the paper came out, big picture on the front of the paper that I took of a fire and I hadn't even mentioned it to my mom. Uh-huh. I was like out skating, whatever. And she gets a paper and she's looking at the paper and she's like, oh, this is weird. This photo is credited to you. Like, oh yeah. I shot that picture at the fire the other day. Like, uh-huh. What are you talking about? I ran into Michael like, you know, sometime that week and he was like, oh my God, that's great. You know, how, you know, if you want to shoot anything else for the paper, let me know. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it would be great. Mm-hmm. I just started hanging out at the newspaper, and then he taught me how to develop film. Mm-hmm. So it was a dark room there, and so I, then it was kind of great because I was shooting a lot. I, I didn't pay for anything. This was all black you know? and white stuff at that time too, right? Or was it? Yeah, okay. yeah. No, it's all black and white. Okay. I, mean, I guess the, I don't know what the deal was. Uh, yeah, I don't actually, I mean, everything, the stuff that I started shooting almost exclusively was black and white. Okay. Um, but the paper had the front page was colored. So I don't know what I started shooting when I'd go in there, the dark room was black and white. I processed it and uh, I was processing black and white film and, uh, it was kind of awesome because it, I became, I just sort of became the photographer for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I had been working as a at a radio at the radio station. There's a bluegrass radio station in town, and I had won a contest to be the DJ for the last shift. They they had a thing with all of the they wanted someone like young and cool. They wanted to engage something else, mm-hmm. and it was a bluegrass radio station. And Waldron has a bluegrass festival, and it's fun. And I like bluegrass, but at the time, it was not what I was into at all. Right. But my dad was just like, oh, just go try. Go, right. you know, go do the thing. So we went and we sat in there and we read things on the microphone and then we talked about some stuff. And it was awesome because, you know, I got a four hour a night job at uh, the radio station, mm-hmm. which was, you know, also really useful once I got to school and once I did a lot of other stuff. You know, I really just would go to work. Um, it's kind of crazy, actually, to think about. Because I think that I went to work at 8 
and then I worked till midnight. Yeah. And I would just go with my comic books at the store next door. I'd sit in there and like read comic books and then like song would be over and I'd start doing it. And it was awesome because I talked to the, the station manager into letting me do like a country crossover thing. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, I played a lot of Steve Earle and a lot of like sort of pop country stuff that wasn't really the demographic for the thing. Right. But you know, a lot of kids started tuning in and it was like kind of a useful thing. Anyways, working for the paper was really good because it got me super engaged in my town. Mm-hmm. Like there was like no reason to not go to every single thing. Right. You know, people are always excited to see me. You know, I was like, like a seven year old kid. It's like, all right, I'm going to go to. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever I wanted to, like I took assignments, but I also did a ton of enterprise stuff where I would just, uh-huh. so I'm going to go to the fair and like play around with like long exposures or I'm going to go, you know, ride the, the rides with those girls so I can like take a picture of them in the ride or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was super liberating, you know, yeah. uh, just to be involved in my community and like uh, my aunt owned a restaurant in town and so i knew a lot of people anyways but i didn't i i really got to know them when i worked at the newspaper because people are like you know like kind of awesome stuff like uh some guys saw me on the street one day and stopped me like oh david david you gotta take a picture of this they had in they had the biggest uh snapping turtle i've ever seen um in the back of their truck and they had, you know, they're like, oh my God, yeah, we caught this over here. Unless they were still They alive. caught it. Still the place, it, no, it, it was still live. Okay. Yeah. It was crazy. It was like, I was terrified of it. You know, they had like a tire iron there, like, watch. And they'd hold it in there and they'd go, and, it's basic. and then they just pull it across. I, uh, yeah. I had a pet snapping turtle for a while in college, but it was only about that big. Um, yeah. But oh, this thing was massive. Yeah, I'm just sort of imagining. Yeah. I mean, basically, you're looking at a dinosaur in the back of a pickup truck. Yeah, yeah, and it was super cool. And you know, they're like, I'm shooting, you know, pictures of them, you know, like posing around, whatever. Mm-hmm. But people recognized me in the neighborhood, in the town, and like would engage me for things like that. And so it was kind of awesome. And uh, the newspaper, they would give me things to do, but they were also just super, like, wow these pictures are great. Whatever you want to do, go do it. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because I don't know what year, let me see what year Photoshop came out. That's definitely when I started using Photoshop. Uh, Photoshop's like 30 years old now. I think. Photoshop. I'm not even typing. I don't know. Well, it doesn't matter, but it's so I started using Photoshop. Yep. Then they had Mac computers, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I still, those kind of like off white uh-huh. giant things, right? like they're so crazy. Uh, but even that, like I would sit in the newspaper all night long, just playing on Photoshop, just affecting text or, you know, mm-hmm whatever it was amazing you know we used it primarily for layout stuff i think we're 
laying out with Cork and Photoshop. And then, you know, I'd have to make these halftones of the things, which, you know, we didn't really use photos in Photoshop. We were just making graphics with it. Right. Um, pretty wild. So I don't know. Uh, so anyways, then uh, I went to school in Fort Smith for a little bit. Mm-hmm. did terrible. Uh, I would drive up there and then I would skip class and then I'd run around Fort Smith because it, it was like going to the big city for me right and uh, hang out at the mall and like just not do any work at all. So then uh, I eventually lost my financial aid. I got booted from what it was West Ark at the time. Now I think it's, U of A, Ufus Smith, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yep. Ufus, yes. So then I took like a year off and I was like just skating and photographing. I was working in, a, you know, part time in a grocery store in my town. Mm-hmm. And I did like a ton of jobs. I worked in my aunt's restaurant. I was just doing a little bit of everything. And I had this, uh, had this vision. <laughs> I had just gotten, I had just, oh, actually, no, this was the second time. So wait, then I left and went to tech. Mm-hmm. I was at tech for one year. Yep. And then I did the same thing that I did at Fort Smith and I got my financial aid taken away. Mm-hmm. So I had to go back to work and again, started working at the grocery store. And then one morning, I was in there waxing the floors, five in the morning, and had a vision that I was going to be manager of this grocery store if I didn't leave. And if I became manager of this grocery store, I would never go anywhere. Yeah, that would. So be- then my boss comes in, and I told him, uh, "Yeah, I'm going to give you my notice. I'm going back to school in like, I know it was two weeks or four weeks, whenever the semester was about to start." Mm-hmm. I was leaving. Mm-hmm. And so I then I had to take two classes and get at least a C to bring my grade point up enough that I would have my financial aid reinstated. Mm-hmm. And so I'd saved up enough money that I took two classes that seemed easy enough for me to take and get a C. And I lived in my car in the Payne Hall parking lot. And um, I worked... 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. at the Denny's uh, cooking. And then I worked from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Trans Restaurant as a busboy. Mm-hmm. Um, Trans isn't open anymore. but right. uh, So both of them, I took both jobs because I knew that I would have food to eat. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'd make a little bit of money. But then I slept in my car. And then I'd go to class, and I'd get up and go to the Chinese restaurant, come back, go to my other class, and then I'd go back, sleep for a little bit, and then I'd go work all night long at Denny's, and then come back and sleep for a few hours before I had to go to class again. And it was terrible. And then, uh, I mean, it's a whole different story, but I was showering in Payne Hall, because I'd lived in Payne Hall, right. and back to skateboarding. Uh, I'm sure Robert McKinney is probably a cop in uh, in Russellville. Still, he's a cop somewhere. I don't know. I don't. Know. He was a guy he's that. Tired I, by now. He was a he was a cop when I was there. Yeah, maybe. So, 
Okay. Well, he and I had like a, a like a longstanding beef mm-hmm. because skateboarding used to be illegal on campus, and I would right. skateboard on campus, and he would constantly try and chase me down. And I had all of these games that I would play. I'd always just run away from him. Mm-hmm. But uh, I started. I lived in Payne Hall, and I would keep all my stuff in the bathroom, uh, in the shower, and then. Uh, Several times, I would like they would chase me and I'd run back to Payne Hall and I'd throw my skateboard in the bush and I'd run inside and then I would like just go jump up in the shower and then I'd hear them beating on my door and I'd come out of the shower like with a towel on carrying my stuff and they'd be like, David, I know it was you. I know it was you that was skateboarding. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've been here showering. And, it's good hygiene. Uh, this dude hated me. <laughs> and he there's also like a time because I didn't understand how school worked and I, I was kind of dumb about it. But he finally caught me one time. He and this other guy caught me and I I was like sitting on the curb and he's like writing me a ticket and my skateboard's laying there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Okay, you can have your skateboard back once you pay this citation. And I was like I stood up and I looked at it. I was like, how much is it? And he's like, it's $75. And I was like, fuck that. And I jumped up and I kicked my skateboard and broke it in half. And I was like, you can keep it. And I flipped him off and I ran away. <laughs> and I didn't realize that because he was a campus cop, I wouldn't be able to enroll in my next semester without paying the fine. That fine, yeah. And so then I not only had to buy another skateboard, I had to pay the fine. Uh, but that dude hated me. And so he one day, when I was showering in Payne Hall, actually showering, not uh-huh. hiding from him showering, I'm sleeping in my car. I'm walking out to my car, and I got a, my towel folded up and my dirty clothes folded up. My hair's kind of wet. And then he's standing there by the door, and he's like, Mr. Holloway, uh, what are you doing? He's like, uh, taking a shower. And uh, he was like, uh, are you a resident of Payne Hall? And I was like, man you know, I've always lived in Payne Hall. And he goes, are you currently a resident of Payne Hall? And I was like, no. And so then he arrested me for theft of services for showering in the dorm. Wow. Robert McKinney, you still suck, dude. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, uh, so that was like uh, a... catalyst after that I became an RA I got a room for free I didn't really get it for free I worked a lot all right let's talk okay so let me just go ahead and energize energize oh, yeah back on target no the common <laughs> just we'll hit a common mentor of ours you, you probably met John Gale about this time uh-huh yeah uh, my hero he like, saved me all the time even that time <laughs> I uh yeah my first day to walk on, on campus uh, I went down to the TV studio because you're always a photographer. I was always on the video side of things. And again, and George was down there and I was trying to find John and you're like, no, John's not here. He just had his first child today. And then he, oh. and it was like, her name is Tally. I went and and then George came and was like, Tally light. And it's like, okay, Tally. Okay. Tally. So there's, and, but yeah, and then I got to meet uh, Holly who also ended up his wife um, kind of became a another hero of mine because I used to walk around with like just taped up Converse um, 
not because I couldn't afford shoes. It's just I it's, that was the the era, like a duct tape because yeah. you know the soles were coming off. And Holly grunge man, Holly <laughs> brought me a pair of John shoes one day <laughs> to school. <laughs> she's like, wow. She's like Billy. I just see you wearing these shoes, and I just want to make sure that I'm like, I have shoes, Holly. Thanks. I just choose not to wear them. <laughs> but when I was in school in Waldron, uh-huh. I always had like ripped up jeans. Yep. And there was an English teacher there who uh, he would always comment on the way that I was dressed. Mm-hmm. And I had like a jacket with like studs and stuff on it, all the stuff that I had made. Mm-hmm. And one day, in class, my jeans are like all shredded, tore up. He goes, everybody, let's take up a love offering from Mr. Holloway so we can buy him a new pair of pants. And he went, so he's like walking around the class with like a, a thing trying to get money from a bunch of kids. So I'll wear a new pair of pants. Uh-huh. I wound up getting best dressed in my like school like <laughs> thing. And I totally like, I went to him and I was like, I don't know if you're my enemy or if you're my friend, but I'm always going to dress this way. And then I never dress like that anymore. <laughs> Holly's amazing. You know, Tally lives here in New York now. Yeah, I do. Yeah, seriously. And uh, she was literally the very first baby that I ever held. Really? Because I was standing in Witherspoon one day, and Holly comes through with the baby. She's like, I've got to go to the bathroom so bad. Hold Here, this. hold the baby. And she handed me Tally, and I had no idea how to hold a baby. So I'm like just holding her out like that. Uh-huh. And I was I was amazed at how like dense she was. It's like <laughs> so much heavier than I thought it was gonna be. It's like a little thing. And then like they're like, no, hold it up there next to you. I'm like, no. Just holding her out here like this, arms quivering. These, these things leak. I'm not getting close to me. Right. Yeah, no idea. John, you know, John was actually super influential to me um, because he literally knows a little something about everything. Uh-huh. And like more so than probably most anyone that I've met. Mm-hmm. And especially at that time. He like constantly like I would like think that I was a wizard, like, you know, like really into something, you know, that I wasn't that I wasn't, uh, you know, I thought that I like had like just discovered something. And then he'd be like, oh, well, do you know? And then he'd just give me like some deep knowledge on it that I was like, holy crap. Wow. I don't know anything. Oh, so then I would just go to the library and dig deep we didn't have the internet really we barely had the internet he uh we had bullet board systems he hired me to help him put a documentary together when i was i don't know junior or senior and we and i literally just traveled around the state with him for about two months just going places i probably learned more in those two months of just kind of shadowing him than i ever did in the rest of the school Mm -hmm. so yeah and i also found out exactly how dry his humor was um (laughs) The man can crack a joke, and, and it's five minutes later when you figure it out. <laughs> so. Yeah, he's so smart. Dude, he he did some wizard education stuff for me, too. Uh-huh. So I don't know if the, if the communications broadcasting students have to take 
intro to mass communication still. Mm-hmm. Yep. I used to teach it. Uh, <laughs> but I don't, what time is it now? What time do you teach that class? I don't teach it anymore, but um, I tried teaching it once at eight o'clock in the morning and then vowed never again. So it was always after that, it was always like 11 o'clock. Oh, see, you were what I needed. It was always at 8 a.m. Uh-huh. And so I did a bunch of, I would like, I was like out with Jeff Oliver and, a, you know, a couple other people. We'd always be skateboarding all night long. Mm-hmm. Or I'd be in the dark room all night long. I'd always be doing something all night long. And that class, which was required, mm-hmm. was at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. So I would always go to the class, but I would go sit in the back of the class and I would promptly fall asleep. So I had to take that class three times the third time that i went in there i was like oh my god i just got to get through this class i just got to do it Mm -hmm. john came to me and he was like david i need your help with something okay you know what is it there's a girl in class uh who needs a, a desk set up for her every morning and i would like you to be in charge of that I was like, yeah, okay, sure, fine, whatever. The girl comes. It was a girl who didn't have any arms. Mm-hmm. And she had like a little desk that she put in front of her thing. And she'd mm-hmm. come in, take her bag up, get her stuff out and do it. So like the first or second day of class, she always sat right in front. Mm-hmm. So then I'd have to sit right next to her in front. And, uh, you know, she's like, I'd get her set up. She's doing her thing. And then I would sit there, cross my arms, and I'd start to nod off. And she kicked me in the leg. I was like, what? What? What is wrong? She's like, David, you're embarrassing me. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. So then I sat, I stayed awake, and I realized the class is very manageable uh-huh. as long as you pay attention to the stuff. Oh, yeah, this is all common sense stuff. So then... I watched all the lectures. I read all the things because she kept me awake because mm-hmm. I wasn't going to embarrass her. Right. And I totally believe that this was all part of like John's master plan to like steer me towards finishing the school. I be- it's like some weird, it's so far beyond me that he liked, he was like, okay, I've got a plan here. All the pieces are in place. David is finally going to pass his class. He's like your personal and it worked. Mr. Miyagi. He's just like, he's just sort of the zitter, right. master of, you know, mass com. Yeah. Yeah, man. All you right. Are... You finally make it through college. Okay. You... Finally make it through college. Uh, in college, one thing that was really important for me is I started um, pitching stories to newspapers, big newspapers all over the country. And um, I did a little – the most successful thing that I did is uh, I went to Alaska uh, with Fred Gladys and Sabin Bhattacharya and uh, someone else. But Fred and Sabin and I all, you know, mostly traveled together. Mm -hmm. And then I went and we worked in the fishing industry and then we came back to school and we would – I had to make money and it was super useful, but I wrote, um, I wrote a series of articles about going to Alaska to work in fishing. Mm-hmm. And then I started writing a series of articles about traveling with no money. Uh-huh. And those got picked up a ton 
So then in Dr. Tyson's class and a little bit in Tommy's class, uh, there would be assignments that I didn't get done. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to turn in the assignment thing. If I don't have that, but I've got this, and then I'd have like a, a clip of a story in like the Dallas Morning News or the LA Times or something in the travel section. Uh -huh. And so it's kind of, uh, uh, I got a lot of credit for those stories just because I was, you know, putting myself out there. Uh, yeah. Not doing a very good, I'm still not, I'm still, I'm an, I'm a, I'm a good journalist, but I am not a good student. Mm -hmm. uh, I think is maybe a safe way to say it, or I wasn't, I'd say I'm probably a really good student right now. I'm teaching myself uh, the intricacies of Adobe Premiere. Oh, it's yeah. very rewarding. Ah, well, I can help on that if you ever need some. That's what I do. I, I do need some help. <laughs> I, I love it so much, uh -huh. but I was using Final Cut for a long time. And like, I don't do a lot of editing. I don't do right. any editing that's very serious on a lot of the projects that I've done that have been substantial. Mm -hmm. We've always hired an editor, right. you know, or there's been an editor for it. So I never had to really learn the sort of nuances of it. And uh, now I've been obsessed with YouTube for a while. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've done a couple of other things. And a lot of my friends who do this stuff are like, no, you got to, you got to dump Final Cut. You should be using Premiere. Mm -hmm. like, it's just better. This is just did you immediately more robust, more complete thing. You discovered like, oh, this is basically Photoshop, except it moves. It's just like I can do all these things and, and yeah. things like, oh, I know where that tool is. Well, I don't know where any of the tools are. That's the reason that I still edit in slow motion. Uh -huh. I need to get one of those keyboard things with all like the shortcuts on it. So oh, yeah. I can, yeah. But it, 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 it is definitely like, I mean, I think like being super comfortable in Photoshop uh -huh. makes Premiere seem possible. Yeah. But also there are so many videos not just videos of people explaining things, but like when you're watching like videos that some like random kid is doing somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, posting it on YouTube and he does something really tricky mm -hmm. or really beautiful or whatever, then I'm instantly like, Oh wow. If that kid could do it, I definitely can do it. Right. And so then I just, you know, rabbit hole into like studying Premiere, uh, which is it. I really like, I've actually super, it's super frustrating, but I, I really love it. And I've done a couple of things where I was trying to teach myself how to put multiple, uh, videos in one page and one frame, making yep. like a frame in after effects and whatever. Yep. And, um, I wasn't getting some things to line up. I was having, I was a little bit, frustrated with the controls and then i went to sleep and i woke up the next morning and sat down and it instantly made sense i'm like oh yeah wait no i just got the numbers wrong everything lined up and then i was uh so you should be sleeping at some point when you're trying to learn something yeah because you're, you're in your dreams you're actually processing premiere you just don't know it oh yeah totally i uh i picked up premiere in nine, and it was nineteen ninety eight. Oh, that's fantastic! Holy crap! Uh, ninety eight. Ninety eight. 
I bought one of the first editions of Premiere because, well, the thing was, I learned everything. I guess it's kind of the same difference, like, you know, going from darkroom to digital, like everything, you know, it was VHS tapes when we were going through college and it was, tapes, uh-huh. you know, VCRs and then everything swapped over to computers. And I was like, holy crap, I don't know how to do, I don't know how to do the thing that I'm supposed to know how to do. And so I had a, uh, I remember specifically, I paid $500 for a 20 gig hard drive uh, in 98. And, and I thought I had like, I, I, I called <laughs> my supercomputer and I bought one of the earliest versions of Premiere and it literally sat there for six months. And I just kind of stared at it going, I don't know what to do with this. And I eventually just started hacking away on it. And then kind of the same thing happened with Photoshop. I didn't really know what I was doing. I just started hacking away. And then I started, I got a bright idea because Jeff Oliver was living in Napa then. And there was a, uh, there was a Photoshop conference in San Francisco. And I'm like, Hey, I can go see Jeff, stay with him. And then I can go to this conference. And then I actually started going to Adobe conferences and I was like, Holy shit, you can do that. And it was just like, these are all the things that I didn't know that I could do. And then it was like, Oh, and that's all you have to do. And then, yeah. And it started to open up doors. Uh, so, Oh yeah. Kids. You should all register for Adobe Max right now because yeah, it's free. It's free. And it's next month. And it's crazy that it's free. I went to that in Las Vegas a few years back. And that is. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I got. To, yeah. I managed to get the university to pay for oh. me to go there. And yeah. I was like, where has this been all my life? <laughs> so. Right. Right. So, yeah. I'm encouraging everybody. Just go. Just do it on. Do it. On, it's free. So, all right. Amazing. This is the bonus of COVID. Okay. Right. Uh, so I graduate. Yep. I leave and go to an internship in Washington D.C. Yep. And uh, I'm interning, and I'm also sending out. Uh, it was at a place course. called Youth Today, sending out mail, and I'm. Uh, you know, just freelancing, trying to get little jobs around town. It was actually really amazing at the time because Bill Clinton was president. And I had a notebook, uh, actually like kind of a weird thing. You know, Marianne Selman, (laughs) she was uh, on the board at tech. She was Clinton's first campaign. uh, I know chief of campaign or whatever her title was. I don't know what it was. (laughs) She ran his first campaign. She okay. was on the board at Tech. I think she she might have retired. She uh, she's a state senator in Arkansas, and so there's a bunch of people that I had sort of met uh, through her, through some other people. But I had a little notebook full of names and phone numbers and like some random note. Oh, uh, this person told me to call them. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that person, um, whatever. It was just like, honestly, like a little bitty notebook full of names and phone numbers. Everyone has some sort of connection to Arkansas. Right. And so people just told me, yeah, when you get there, call them and tell them, whatever. Um, and what was it? I mean, there were so many of them. Anyways, I got there, and I would just, like, randomly call people. Hey, I'm uh, David. I'm Arkansas. I graduated from tech last year. And, 
you know, I'm here doing this. So-and-so gave me your number. And almost every single time mm-hmm. it would lead to something like usually not like a glorious job, but like, right. you know, someone like, Oh yeah. You know, I know we're going to have this party. You can come photograph this party or you can do whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was super useful just relying on, you know, the sort of guidance that other people had given me. And then uh, I had, oh man, so much weird stuff happened then. I actually don't remember how I wound up in the Don Ray media office, uh, but um, they had an office in the National Press Building, and uh, Don Ray, Don Reynolds, owned the paper in Fort Smith and the paper in Las Vegas and right. a bunch of his business was uh, like small to medium papers. Yep. And he had a bunch of them. And um, then when uh, I wound up in the office one day and I met one of the guys, I was like, oh, yeah, well, I'm from Arkansas. And like, that was it. Like, they started giving me assignments. And it was cool. I started shooting on the Hillmore. I started shooting in the White House a little bit. And uh, because I was shooting for all, all the papers, shooting for the paper in Vegas, and I was shooting for the paper in Fort Smith, mm-hmm. um, and they had a news service, sort of. But a lot of times, there would be an Arkansas connection from, you know, like whatever the assignment was. Mm-hmm. So then it would just you know, piggyback on to the next thing. That person, oh, that's great. You know, you should meet this person. Right. And so I uh, I kept doing that. I wound up having an accident um, at one point where I uh, was <laughs> uh, so messed up. Uh, I, I got super messed up. I, like, uh, separated uh, two vertebrae in my spine. I fractured four ribs, I ruptured my spleen, I broke my wrist, I broke my ankle. Uh, I had a ton of stuff that was wrong, and I couldn't do anything for three months. Mm-hmm. And I had, to, I had to wear shirts backwards because uh, I had pins in my oh. in my back. Yep. So I had to wear a button-up shirt like backwards, and I had to sleep on my stomach. I had to do all this terrible stuff. Uh, but I wound up uh, I lived in a house with a bunch of other people, including Jason Hutto, and I wound up getting food stamps because I couldn't, I was disabled uh, mm-hmm. at this point. And um, it was kind of an awesome thing for our house because then we'd go to the grocery store and my roommates would just, we'd buy grocery carts full of food, which we never did before. We were all broke and like, you know, doing whatever. Anyway, Weren't you living with- when I could move it oh go ahead go ahead sorry what no i was just thinking weren't you living with a band uh, this time at that point too no that was after okay that was after okay a little bit later okay uh but this i lived with jason hutto who, who also went to tech because i had moved to dc to do this internship and i had moved into a house full of women uh several of the other ones there were like six people lived in the house Mm-hmm. And several of the other ones were also interns at different places. And when their internships were up, they left. So it was me and a girl named Yolanda and a girl who also still had an internship at the White House, which was 
going to last for like six more months or something like that. But I wrote a letter. We had to fill up the other rooms. And so I wrote uh, letters to and called a bunch of people that I knew. And I said, look, this is your one opportunity to move to D.C. for an affordable price. Mm-hmm. You can move into our house. We're going to have four rooms and it's going to be a thing. And I lived as far away from D.C. as I could. Not intentionally. That's just where Yolanda had this house. Uh-huh. And so I had to skateboard like 25 minutes to the bus stop and then take the bus from George Mason University to the train stop, which is another 20 minutes, and then take the train from the very last stop all the way in town. Um, oh, man, there's some. Actually, that's reminding me so much of. Uh, a lot of times I would come home, it'd be, I'd go to a show or something, and it'd be too late because the trains in D.C. closed. But I would just go sleep in Lafayette Park because the backtrack, spring break of my senior year, I was in D.C., and I was hanging out in Lafayette Park, which is now called Black Lives Matter Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, there used to be 42 people who lived in the park. Um, and it was like a pretty well-orchestrated thing that I had photographed a guy there uh, who was a homeless white separatist. Mm-hmm. And I photographed him with this flag that he made with these Nazi SS bolts. He's got a big beard. He's a crazy guy. His name, he went in Zeus. And uh, he, uh, I went and I got the pictures printed at a one hour lab. Mm-hmm. And then and I went back to give him one of the pictures. I couldn't find him. And I met another guy who I'd met with him and gave him the thing. He said, oh, I'll give it to Zeus. You know, no problem. Then the day that I was leaving town, uh, I walked back through the park again, and he was there. And he's like, David, oh, the picture, it's the best picture I've ever seen. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's so good. Thank you so much. And I was like, oh, wow, that's great. You know, uh, I want to come back, and I want to do a photo project on you. Mm-hmm. Like, being a crazy, like, white racist living in a park in Chocolate City, it seems like the worst idea in the world. And he's like, that would be great. Okay, he's like I don't know how to find you because you don't have a phone or an address. And he's like, every day I'm in the park at some time every day. So if you come here, you'll be able to find me. Okay, so then I took the bus from DC to uh, from Arkansas to DC, mm-hmm. and I had about thirty five dollars, and I was going to stay in a park with a homeless guy and like live like homeless people do, documenting him for this time, and. I looked around for him all day long. I couldn't find him. No luck. Then, like, that evening, I'm sitting in the park on a bench, and I don't know what to do. And I start talking to this woman, uh, Carol, Mm -hmm. and I tell her, yeah, look, I'm talking to this guy, and I can't find him. I came. I was going to do a photo project on him, but he's not here. So now I don't know what to do because I'm not supposed to leave for two weeks, and Mm -hmm. I don't have any money or anything. And she's like, well, you can stay with us. You know, you can say with my friends, we'll show you how to do it. You can photograph us. And so it was her, her boyfriend, Richard, who went by the name Mountain Man, mm-hmm. and uh, her ex-boyfriend, Marshall. And they were kind of a little crew, and they were part of the 42 people who lived in Lafayette Park. 
And so then I started staying in Lafayette Park and I met all the people and like did all the things. And I became number 43. So I did, I did so much amazing stuff. It was actually super wild because I had done really well at college photography. There's so much backstory here. I need to write a timeline or something. Uh, need to write a I had done really well at college photographer of the year. Uh-huh. And so I got invited by uh, University of Missouri to come for the judging of the professional photographer of the year competition. Uh-huh. And like, you know, I'd go load slide trays and watch the judge and whatever. And two of the judges, one was Joe Elbert, who was the DOE at the Washington Post at the time. And uh, the other was this woman named Yonghee Kim, who had won Photographer of the Year, who I had actually met previously, briefly, uh, in Tanzania. Mm-hmm. But I met them there, and they both lived in D.C., they both gave me their info. And I was talking to Joe, and he said, well... If you're going to come do this project, you should process your film every day so you can see if, you know, you what you need to be working on, what you're missing, and, and whatever. Right. So he let me come to the Washington Post and use the darkroom. Uh, and it was, uh, it was pretty amazing because Lucian Perkins, who worked at the Washington Post, had just won World Press. And so he had a big exhibit in Amsterdam, and he was printing all the photos in there. And I would be in there, like, you know, like doing my stuff. And he would talk to me, like, what do you, what do you think of this? Is the contrast okay? Like, man, why is this guy asking me? Uh huh. This guy's like a big deal. He's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's like, you know, done all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I would like tell him what I thought. And he did it. And then at the end of like the time that I was there, or the end of the time he, when he was finishing up the thing, he gave me one of the work prints that he had made from the exhibit mm-hmm. and i don't think that he knew that i was sleeping in the park uh-huh. so you know i kept doing stuff then i was done i got this amazing print which is in the bedroom right now but i just rolled it up stuck it in my backpack and then walked back down to the park uh-huh. so you've got a big tear in it it's all crinkled and everything and it's like you know probably one of the you know more valuable prints that i own and I, you know, at the time I was just a kid sleeping on parks, so I didn't think much about it. Anyways, I photograph all this stuff. It's pretty good. And there's a lot of like amazing things that happen. Like one day it's raining and everyone's out. And so I just walked to Georgetown where Yonkey Kim lived and knocked on her door. And was like, oh, what's going on? And I was like, oh, sleeping in the park and uh, I, it's raining. There's not a lot going on. I just thought I'd walk over and say hi. And she's like, she made me hot chocolate gave me some apples and like you know we talked and now she lives here i live here like the relationships like the people that you meet you will continue to meet meet them like sort of through everything and everyone winds up being kind of beneficial she she's a very vocal person mm-hmm. she, you know she won photography year before she's very uh smart she's a very committed journalist uh, she is very opinionated and some people uh, like she's done a lot of really amazing things. She started her own grant program. She like, you know, was given $5,000 to people who are submitting grants uh, to her because she wants to support people doing like good work. 
Right. And it's pretty amazing. But uh, I wound up at like a party or something and I met some people and they're like, oh, I know who you are. And like, what are you talking about? It's like, yeah, Young Hee Kim, she was talking about you. She says, you're crazy. <laughs> and I was like, what? And, you know, Young Hee Kim is crazy. So if she thinks you're crazy, I don't know if I'm ready for this. So it's like part of a ridiculous, like, uh, you know, just a ridiculous reputation that I, I felt obliged to live up to for a little while. Mm -hmm. Anyways, back to the story. I did all that stuff. I go back to school. I'm committed to doing, uh, you know, journalism, like good journalism. Uh, I was then dating a woman from Tanzania, uh, and I wanted – she was going to go to Tanzania for the summer. I wanted to go. So I started researching uh, internship possibilities in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. I got the first internship at uh, the Citizen, Wananchi, which is the, uh, and the Express. It's two papers, but it's the first independent paper in the country. The country was a socialist country for 20 years. And, um, yeah, so much ha actually happened there. Uh, the country is a socialist country for 20 years, and so this was the first independent newspaper. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to go work for them. And it's like the roots of journalism in America. I'm Ben Franklin here. This is awesome. And I go, and then it was very educational, but sort of the way they operated, sort of the way they told stories, Mm -hmm. felt to me to be a lot more like my high school newspaper. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, you know, I was doing some stuff. I took a trip to Zanzibar. When I came back, the editor's talking to me, and he's like, oh, what happened? I go, oh, Zanzibar is really amazing. But everyone was trying to sell me drugs. Like, guys were constantly trying to sell me drugs. Ah, you should write a story about, uh, you know, the drug problem in Zanzibar. Uh-huh. No, there's not a story. It's like I'm a white guy getting off the boat in Zanzibar, and people think that I got money mm. and that I probably do drugs and travel around, whatever. And he's like, no, this is a good story. You've got to do this story. Like, uh, okay. So I call the police station in, in Zanzibar trying to talk to this guy. I was like, hey, can I get any statistics on – you know, drug arrests in Zanzibar. He was like, what are you talking about? You know, well, what kind of records do you guys keep on, you know, who gets arrested for possession, who gets arrested for selling, what what kind of drug charges are there? And he's like, everything is in the book. I was like, what do you mean? And so there's like a literal log book, like if someone gets arrested, they come in and then they like write stuff in the book. But they're not keeping statistics. Nobody's analyzed their stuff. There's no information. Mm -hmm. It's just an editorial me going like, oh, wow, it's like a white guy traveling around Africa. Everyone thinks that I want to buy drugs. But the guy was really adamant about me, like, like oh, you should do this story. This is good. This is thing. I don't know. So I wound up taking a trip to Nairobi. Mm -hmm. And then I met a guy named Reed Hoffman at the Associated Press. He was the bureau chief at the Associated Press. And then I met the bureau chief at Newsweek. And uh, 
talked both of them into uh, into letting me freelance in Tanzania for Associated Press and for Newsweek mm-hmm. because it was, they were having their first multi-party elections. So then I would do, I would still go to the internship because that's where I learned most of the things about what's happening in Tanzania. But then I would write stories that I would pitch to AP mm-hmm. uh, and send them pictures, which we would print in our lab at the uh, dark room in Tanzania. And the amazing thing about that is I brought this is another tech story. So when I was getting ready to go to Tanzania, I started reaching out everywhere for support. Like anyone that I can think of, any company, I would reach, hey, I'm going to be an intern in the fourth poorest country in the world. I need some support. And uh, someone, I don't know who, could have been John Gale, could have been Tommy Mummer. I don't know. Someone gave me the name of a guy named Jack Kelleher and gave me a phone number, and he worked at AGFA. And so one night I called him. I was like, hey, uh, my name is Dave Hall. I'm a student at Arkansas Tech, and I'm going to internship. I'm just trying to see if any kind of corporate support, uh, you know, film or otherwise to go on the trip. And then he's like, oh, great. You know, and he starts asking me all these questions. He goes, where do you live? And I go, oh, well, I live on campus. He's like, yeah, yeah, but which dorm? And I go, oh, I, I live in Payne Hall. He was like, oh, that's great. I lived in Turner. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And he he actually was like in x-ray sales or something like that. Uh-huh. Lived in California. But he's like, yeah, just make me a list. Fax me a list of what you want. And, you know, I'll take care of it. And so, you know, I made like a modest list. I wanted like a couple of hundred foot spools of black and white film of this film. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, you know, a couple of boxes of paper and a little bit of chemistry. And he sent me the first time he sent me two or three huge boxes of stuff, like 5,000 sheets of paper and like you know, 10 hundred foot rolls of film and all this stuff. And and then I took most of that with me to Tanzania. But when I got back, he sent me a box of stuff probably every month, month and a half for the rest of the time that I was in school. Wow. It's just a random guy who went to tech Mm -hmm. who, you know, I reached out to and he wound up being like my benefactor for several years. So one of the things that happened because of that is I recently looked on LinkedIn for every person from tech uh, who like lives in the New York area. I was like, yeah, I should just connect with them. I should just do that. And there aren't a lot, but I've reached out to several of them and like some of them are super interesting. And, you know, at some point I'm sure that our paths will intersect and it'll be a useful thing for someone like if any of them needs help from me i'm totally game uh one of the super other important things that happened to me during this time i was still a student at tech Mm -hmm. i was living in in tanzania uh and i went to julius nere the then president socialist president of tanzania the guy who decided that tanzania needed to be a democracy and he was stepping down to hold the first multi-party elections. He had a house and a big table in this house. And 
uh, all the journalists, when he'd have a press conference, he'd sit at one end of the table, and the room would fill up with journalists, and we would all sort of be there. And the first time I went there, I'm standing at the far end of the table, like tucked in with a bunch of guys that I know, other journalists in town, maybe like 60 people in the room. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sees me, and I'm the only white guy in the room. And he's like, Zungu, like, white guy. Unakile, like, get over here. I was like, oh, man. So I'm like walking through, like squeezing through everyone. And I like, mm. you know, get up there to him. And he's like, who are you? And I was like, oh, I'm David. Uh, I, you know, covering the, the elections for the Associated Press. And I'm living in Tanzania now. And he's like, ah, you know, our guest. It's good to tell our story of democracy to the world. You know, here, have a seat. And I was like, no way. Dude, almost everyone in this room has hooked me up at some point. There's no way I'm going to be a white guy that steps to like the front of the line. I'm going to go back there with my friends. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you later. And I go. And he had like a couple of these things that I went to. Uh-huh. But then one day, leaving his house, and I see a white guy standing like in the yard you know next door like working on the gate or raking something i don't know what the thing is but like i like run over to him and i start talking to him i was like whoa who are you what's your story whatever and his name's hugo and he's a fisherman he's married to a tanzanian woman i'm like whoa i want to go fishing like you know what's it it's crazy that a fisherman can live next door to the president this is amazing and we become friends Mm -hmm. like you know, I see him around and he's like, uh, my buddy. And then one day I'm over at his house and there's a woman there that I recognize. I, I was like, oh, I think I know her. Oh, that's weird. And he comes in and he's like, uh, ah, David, uh, mother, this is my friend, David, David, this is my mother, Jane. It was Jane Goodall. And of course it was. Uh, then I understood why the fisherman lived next door to right. the president. But so like that was like kind of a weird like thing. Then fast forward several years later, I'm living in D.C. And one of my friends uh, is doing PR at the Jane Goodall Institute. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know. I don't know how I didn't. I'm not that bright sometimes. Hopefully I'm better now. But I didn't realize because I'd read her book. In her book, she calls him Grub. She always refers to him as Grub. And her husband's name is Hugo. Okay. So I never put it all together. But anyways, Hugo is Grub. So then fast forward, I'm having dinner at some friend's house. And then we're talking about uh, Jane. And um, she's telling me how expensive it is to license photos. This, this guy, Nick Nichols, uh, geographic photographer, owns, like, the biggest body of work on her. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then her husband's like, I don't know, why don't you just have David make some new photos of her and uh, save yourself a ton of money? And she's like, would you do that? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, whatever. Sure. So then the next time that Jane was in town at a thing, she scheduled for me to come in and shoot some portraits of her. Mm-hmm. For the Jane Goodall Institute to use. And so I'm like in there, I have like a little janky setup in this room, and I'm kind of hanging out waiting. And 
I think that, I don't know, I guess I'd never told her that I had met Jane before. Mm -hmm. And so Jane's like coming in, there's like an entourage of people there all kind of walking in and Jane like sees me and stops. And like my friend told me that she was worried that she was having a stroke because she just like froze and she's like staring at me and I'm like, what's up? And then there's a you know big pause and she's like, aren't you Hugo's friend? And I was like, yeah. And so then it was just like, awesome. I started then you you know, traveling with her. Yeah. yeah. So you never know how some stuff is going to work out. Uh, and it was really useful. You know, I, I had other jobs and everything, but like, you know, I traveled to a lot of places with Jane uh, over six years to just document whatever she was doing. And she was really, uh, you know, I, I think that I learned a lot about kind of the way that I operate, which is very standoffish and kind of reserved. Mm-hmm. Because she, like, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a chatty Cathy, but I also like when I'm working, I don't like to be in people's face. I like to sort of let things happen and I'll direct things a little bit if I feel like I need something more. But like, I'm pretty good at reading people and going, okay, we got to be done here. We got to do this quick or whatever. And she told me one day uh, when they needed a, a new picture of her for something, um, you know, she came in, I was like, uh, I go, okay, you ready to do this? This is going to be awesome. And she says, David, I would rather go to the dentist than do this. And I was like, you're hurting my feelings. <laughs> but we shot some pictures. And, like, the one of the pictures that I shot that day is a real simple picture of her with her, like, hands up. It's like the picture that she uses as her bio photo in, like, most of her books still to this day. And so, like, that's kind of awesome. Um a little bit is I like got the right window. She doesn't want anyone else to photograph her because she fucking hates that experience. That was one of the things Anyways. you did. And it's so, it feels like all conversations with you at some point end up on Anthony Bourdain. But that was one of the things I think you told me was the reason you, he liked working with you as your journalism background is you didn't come in and try to overproduce photo shoots. You're just like, walk in. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to be a bit of a fly on the wall and just kind of get in, get out and not bother you. And you're like, here you go. We're done. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. And he, he, once he realized like, so I have a story that I've told a lot. It's the very first time that I directed anything with him. Mm-hmm. We were, uh, we were in, uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, and we're just hanging out. We're just not, we're waiting on some things to come together. We're not really doing anything. And there's like a cool wall, like space and background. So I just go over, I go, hey, you know, you got five seconds. We jump over here and shoot a couple pictures. And then, you know, we're not doing anything. And he started like <sighs> rolling his eyes and him and hot and everything. And I was like, okay, whatever, you know, it's up. He said, no, no, okay, it's fine, you know. And then he like went over and he like stood there and he was cool. Shot a couple of pictures. I shot, I think five or 10 frames pretty quickly. And I was like, okay, that's great. Thanks. And I turned around and walked off and he was like, what? And then later that trip, when we were leaving, when we were flying out, he and I were on the same flight and it was just kind of amazing Wes Anderson thing 
at the airport in St. Petersburg, the terminals are like, you know, kind of a wave and you go through these underground tunnels to get to them with a super long people mover, mm-hmm. like a moving sidewalk thing. And I'm standing on the sidewalk and it's literally, it's got to be the longest one I've ever seen. I don't know how it keeps going, uh-huh. but it was like kind of comical and I'm on it and it's like moving so slow and it's really early in the morning. So I'm not, you know, not trying to get anywhere. I'm not late. I'm I'm hundred percent the first person there, but then I'm like halfway down and I turn around and I look back and then I see Tony step onto the thing. And I was like, oh, man, this is, like, super funny. Like, he's this tiny person in the distance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're just moving at the same speed through this goofy people mover in Russia. And I get to the other end. I sat down. And I'm the only person in the room. And, you know, I'm like, I don't know, I was reading a book and playing a game or something, whatever. And then he comes in. And he, like, sits down. And I said, you know, I look up. And I go, like, Oh, hey, I just want to say, yeah, man, thanks for letting me come. And then he is like, no, thank you for being the most, and I've got it written down. He was just like, uh, he's like, yeah, you don't, you don't waste any time. You know, I appreciate that. And I was like, yeah, man, I'll never waste your time. I go, you know, if I tell you I want five seconds, I want five seconds. But sometime I'm going to ask you for 10 minutes and it's totally going to be worth it. And so he never said no to me, you know, mm-hmm. which was really great. You know, there are a couple of times where he would negotiate, like uh, in Vietnam, he, he's, he's very methodical about what he does or what he did. Mm-hmm. He, uh, when he's shooting a scene, he would not talk to anyone except the producer or the DP before the scene. He wouldn't talk to any of the guests. Because he wanted to, like, when the scene began, everything's, the cameras are all rolling, everything's going. He didn't want to have a conversation with someone in advance where he'd go, oh, shit, that's really interesting, and bring it up again. He wanted it to all be, like, First time. natural and happen as it Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we would all be traveling, and then he would, like, show up right when the scene is supposed to start mm-hmm. and then go. And so a couple of times I was like, hey – you know, I have all this time before this scene this evening. Can we get together and shoot something beforehand? And he was like, yeah, I don't want to do that because, you know, we'll do it after. We'll do it fine. And I go, okay, that's cool. But then we're in Vietnam one day, and I was like, hey, look, they're, you know, marketing's really hounding me. I have to send them something tonight. And he's like, okay, you know, we'll shoot it after the, the dinner scene. I was like, okay, cool. And... <laughs> He was so drunk. Like the guy that he knew was a guy who'd been in a scene before and they just kept drinking. Mm-hmm. And when the scene was over, on they, they kept coming and taking beers. But when the scene was over, there were at least a dozen beers on Tony's side of the table still. Mm-hmm. And he was super drunk. And he's like, Holloway, let's do this. And I'm like, oh, fuck, this is not good. Like, look insane right. like i you know i shoot a bunch of pictures and like they're not very good and i was like okay dude like let's let's go do something else let's go like all right great we leave and then the next morning i see him thing i was like dude that's not gonna work and he's like what and i showed him a couple of the pictures and he's like oh oh 
let's start shooting pictures before let's just schedule so then it was really good because sometimes like i would get up in the morning when we're traveling he did jujitsu every morning and depending on what our schedule was a lot of times i didn't have anything that i had to do until he was going to be around so i would get up and we'd go to jujitsu together we'd do whatever and he'd have a window in there while rest crew shooting b-roll or whatever Mm -hmm. and i'd go hey can we go you know on the roof hotel or i found this place you know, over here, can we go shoot? Can I go shoot you in this cafe or whatever? Then, mm-hmm. you know, it was really good um, because it was just learning to read him, you know, learning to read the subject. What what can you get away with? There's a, uh, um, totally spacing. This is what happens when you don't sleep enough kids. Uh, and look up. His name, because I feel bad for not remembering him right now. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Anyways, there's a photographer that I know who I I like, but I think he's super ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me a little bit about how he works. His photos are about, you know, he shoots a lot of celebrities and stuff. He does exactly the opposite of what I do. He... He liked all these pictures look super uncomfortable, mm-hmm. like super awkward. And so he was telling me like some of the things that he'll do is like, he always tries to shoot his photo first yep. because then, you know, the PR or the town, you're like, what? well, no, let's target you. We got to shoot other things. He was telling me like, uh, there was a boxer that he was, know shooting whatever and they're shooting in a hotel room he's like yeah this space is terrible whatever and he came in and he just you know was sort of acting like he's getting ready and he like put the boxer in the corner of the room and then pushed a table with a plant on it right up in front of him and he's like you know what, what are you doing here she starts shooting shot about four or five photos and then the guy like stepped down. He's like, "Man, I don't want to. What is that? I don't want to do that." He already had his picture uh-huh. because his goal is never to, to flatter people. His goal is to create these awkward situations, yeah, which are amazing. And he's very good at it. I'm constantly trying to go like, "Oh, how does this, you know? How do I visualize this person?" Uh-huh. Like, I love the idea of awkward situations, but I want my pictures to be representative of something that's real right uh and so a lot of times i feel like i've lost some things uh because i'm catered to a little bit Uh but if you're resistant in it there's like some things like i in uh lebanon i you know i told tony um yeah and i want to shoot you on the roof like it's really cool uh you know there's a bunch of stuff up there we can do like just go there and then uh he's like okay you know five minutes before you know we go get the car and then he came up there and we started shooting and then we went up up there for like 45 minutes or an hour just Mm -hmm. hanging out like talking and like looking the city shoot a couple of pictures and then we go look at some other thing we just talked about the different stuff that had happened that week and those kind of moments are like, I mean, pretty precious. Uh, 
mm-hmm. you know, I had a lot of really good ones, but I think about the idea that like, uh, you know, those like little like private things, like he got up there and he was super excited. Wow. Yeah. This is like, just stay here all day. And like, but we got a car with yes here. It's like, I mean, are they going to start without me? Like, oh yeah, they're not going to start without you. We can fucking hang out here all day. Let's do it. Um, um, anyways, I moved to DC. I uh, met a guy named Michael Ducille, who was a. So I had a theory. It's a smart theory. I'm a, a smart theory. I had a rent to pay in my house where I lived with all these people, mm-hmm. and it was not very much rent. I didn't have to make a lot of money. But as I was trying to figure things out, I was like, oh man, it'd be really good if I got a job at a photo lab so I could process my film for free and, you know, I'd get to look at pictures all day long, whatever. And this is 96, 97, something like that. And so uh, I start doing this. And after like two days, I instantly realized I've made a terrible mistake uh, because the people who at that time took their photos to one hour, our photo labs, their photos are terrible. Right. And so, you know, I'm like, oh man, I'm just getting bummed out about photos by looking at this all day long. So after two weeks, I told the owner, I was like, yeah, dude, I gotta, I gotta quit. Like, this is not doing me any favors. And he goes, why don't you work in my frame shop? You know, try that out. And I'm like, well, okay, whatever. So then I switched and I started working in his frame shop. And most of the stuff was like kind of garbage. Then one day, uh, a guy, a woman, brought in two photos from Kenya. And one of them was an awesome photo of an elephant dust going everywhere. And the other photo was of the church that I knew. Because I photographed the church, too. Mm-hmm. And a woman comes in to pick up the, the finished pieces. And I'm talking to her. I was like, oh, yeah, I've been to this church. And then she she's got to make an accent. I'm talking to her. And... Um, she, you know, she's like, oh, my husband took them and we were auctioning them off at our church for like fundraiser. And I'm like, oh, cool. Who's your husband? Oh, his name's Michael C. And I was like, oh, I actually know him because he's in my notebook of the people that I'm supposed to call. But I didn't realize that he's a deputy photo editor at um, deputy photo director at Washington Post. So the next day, he calls me. I mean, he's got a question about the framing. Uh-huh. So I'm talking to him, and I go, oh, yeah, we'll see your friends. And we talk about this a little bit. He's like, why are you working at this Photoshop? And I started to tell him my theory. I'm like, yeah, but I'm really just trying to do plants and whatever. He's like, okay, bring your portfolio to work. He's like, I'm going to stop by when I leave work tomorrow. I was like, okay, cool, cool. So he comes by, and he looks at photos, and he's like, yeah, what are you doing working here? You could, like, be just shooting and, you know, making more money than that. I was like, yeah, well, you know, it's starting to figure this out, trying to meet people. And so on, on my office, I started going to walk in the post and then just hanging out by the light table where all the photo photo editors and photographers would look at film when it first came out of uh, the wash. Mm-hmm. And so I got to, like, be in on all these conversations about like, some of the best photographers at that time like talking about what they're doing. And I hung out there for a few weeks. And then finally, Michael uh, 
took me over to this woman, Sharon Farmer, one of the photos there, and said, okay, give David an assignment. And then, you know, she said, okay. And she like, I don't even remember what the first assignment was. What I do remember is that Sharon said, um, okay, I'm going to send you to this, but leave your 24 millimeter lens at home. And I was like, what? That's my favorite lens. That's whatever. And she goes, I know it's your favorite, but you are not, not a good wide angle shooter. It's like, I don't want you wasting my time, like just bringing me back a bunch of terrible pictures that are too wide and whatever. And I was super hurt at that point. I was like a bratty kid, like sewn off, you know, bite my lip. And I went and did the shoot, but like I started looking through a bunch of my favorite photos, like Eugene Richard or something like that. He shoot really wide angle and like, like an honest master. And it hurt a ton, but I was like, oh man, Sharon is right. I am not that good at that. Whatever. So I started a game then. I started getting a lot of times, which was good, but I started a game where I would um, walk into a room. There were multiple photographers in it, where in DC there are a lot of photographers and a lot of things. But I would always try and determine who I thought was the best photographer. Mm hmm. And then I would like and stand by them. Mm-hmm. I would like pay attention to what they're using. I like listen to when they're firing. It's just like trying to pre-visualize what they were doing. And I did that for months. And then I had a weird series of events. So this guy, Michael Williamson, who was a photographer at the Post, who I didn't know him very well. I just met him a couple of times. But then I'm standing by him, and then on one day, then the next day, we're at another thing, and it's just a few of us, and I'm standing by him again, and we start, he starts talking to me, and I just start telling him, oh, yeah, so I'm trying to be a better photographer, and this is my theory, and so that's actually why I'm standing by you, is because I think, think you're probably the best photographer in the room, and whatever, and he was like, wow, that's actually not, it's not a bad theory, that kind of thing, so I like, yeah, it works out. Then the very next day he and I were on a shoot by ourselves uh, and it was a thing where police were going to raid the drug house and we were both, I was shooting I think for the Washington Times and he was with Post and we're both there and it was amazing because he already knew like what I was doing now but every time I would take a picture he'd be like nope 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 that's your shot nope that's the one. And I was like, oh, he's a little bit arrogant. Oh, I don't know. I got back and I processed my film. I looked at it and I was like, holy crap. He's totally right. He knew it every single time. And so it helped evolve the way I was thinking about actually photographing. Like what, what are moments or what are sort of personal vision? And how do you represent something, you know? Because there, there are techniques and tools that can elevate you. You can elevate kind of everyone. If you kind of, you know, play in that structure, you can con- consistently do great work. And then when you get to that point where you've mastered that, then you have to, like, figure out your own way, your vision. How do you put your tweak on to make it right. uniquely yours? Um, yeah. So I started photographing a lot. 
Uh-huh. I had a guy that I was assisting named Steve Brown, and he was a guy from a generation two before me in DC. He is the now he's got a book on a World War II memorial. He's got a bunch of stuff uh-huh. uh, going on, but he um, is a kind of a crotchety old guy. And I started. I had a few things that happened. Like one, there used to be an organization called Editorial Photographers, and it was like a group, a sort of not a union, but they would you know lobby together to help argue for contract disputes or whatever. And they had a website at this point. It's like a sort of early thing. Like a list. it might have, they definitely had like an AOL group. They had some stuff at that time. But I went to uh, like a conference in Richmond, Virginia, and they were having a talk. And a bunch of these guys that are big photographers that were in editorial photos, they were talking about how oh, we all need to stand there because these contracts are are not good and you know with the magazines Newsweek pays me the same rate that they paid me you know 15 years ago and I get less days whatever and I listen to all this stuff and then like they're taking questions and I want to make a comment uh, I go listen I hear what you're saying but like I live in a house with five other guys and I have assisted most of you, you know, I know I've seen your equipment closet with your quarter of a million dollars worth of equipment. And I've seen that you have, have you know, you built an addition in your house that you own. And I know that you have three cars. It's like, all this is making me think is that I need to call every one of these clients that you guys are complaining about. This door was open for me. And so I got kicked out of the drill of photography. I got kicked off the group. Like I got blacklisted from all that stuff. But I started calling all these people. And so then I started doing like regular assignments for Newsweek. And I started doing regular assignments for time. And I started getting a ton of work. And so that, that was like pretty good because... I was, you know, I was sort of building a name in D.C. as an up-and-coming person who works. And uh, I had a guy, one of the guys who was one of the main guys at Editorial Photos, call me and he's like, okay, Hollow, look, I want you to come over here. I, I want to have a talk about business. And he, you know, like sat me down and like, like, I just want to make sure you know that you don't have to undersell the market. Like, I don't think I'm underselling anything. Like, the rates that I'm billing them are the same rates that they pay everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's just way more money than I was making assisting you, you know? So it's sweet, a sweeter deal. And I'm trying to be a photographer. I'm not trying to be in just not that I haven't learned a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, he gave me, like, you know, kind of a pep talk about how to negotiate a little bit. And I think I've gotten pretty good at it. Not great, but... Uh, better and um then through all that i i tried to start an agency with a couple of people and right at the point we did it for a little while a couple of years year and a half and right when we started making uh started breaking even then 
um, one of the one of my partners had a lawsuit against Corbis. It was a big agency, and it, the lawsuit was like kind of a scam. Anyway, there were several people who were suing Corbis and making millions of dollars. So he had a thing that he was trying to do. Um, that he, you know, about some missing images. And so then we had to constantly go through the archives and which pictures weren't returned, which Corvus still had, whatever. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Uh, it was a big deal, but it was very frustrating. And so we had to Hey, Dave, I'm going to stop. the agency while he sorted out his lawsuit. I'm going to stop I, for a second. Just yep. my connection is something's gotten so bad. I'm hearing like every third word. Oh. Hang on. Well, the third word is the only one that matters. All right, hang on. Let's see if we can get it better. All right, now now suddenly you're going fine. You're a little blurry. Am I blurry now? Oh, that's what I am. Fine. Yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, you're a little blurry. You're like I got blown up pretty bad. So, so. A little garbly. Um. Anyway, it was a lot of work. I wound up, you know, just through different relationships, meeting people. Uh. I started working for the Discovery Channel, and, and I had a friend, uh, Eric Larson, who had done several fun things for him, and they loved him. Mm -hmm. but, so I got a name, and I called some people, and they were in Maryland, and I went had a meeting with them. And the work was fine. Like, I think that they all, all understand that the work has to be of a certain level. Mm -hmm. But the thing that made a real difference is that I told them that my friend Eric had had connected me with them mm -hmm. and they were like oh my eric is great eric is awesome we love eric we, you know he's amazing and so because of my connection to eric they started giving me jobs ah. and some of them were amazing like for the puppy bowl uh i was a photographer for the first seven seasons of the puppy bowl which mm -hmm. sounds super goofy and it a little bit was it honestly was one of the funnest days, two days of every year. I always look forward to it. And I wear puppy bull shirts around. Mm -hmm. Those shirts have gotten me more free things than I mean, literally anything. You like walk into like a restaurant or something and have a puppy bull shirt on and someone to make a comment about it. I go, oh, you like puppy bull? Yeah, I work puppy bull. What? You work on, I watch puppy bull every year. I got puppy bull straight. Hey, oh, here, let me, you know, do a drink. Let me give you in free stuff. Let me do whatever. Always people were very excited about it. So, uh, and I get it because puppy bowl is super fun, super weird. Uh, but it was another, it was like actually another thing that I, I, I think about a lot. So if you haven't seen puppy bowl, uh, puppy bowl runs at the same time as the Super Bowl. And what it is is a collection of of uh, of dogs that need to be adopted. All of them are, are eight weeks old. They are untrained, crazy puppies that run like mad. They built a small set to look like a football stadium, mm -hmm. and then they just put the dogs in there, and then they film it, the dogs playing and doing whatever, and then they have a commentator talk over it, and it's like a football game, and it, it runs the length of the time that the Super Bowl is. It uh, it ran on Animal Planet, and it was the second 
highest rated show in Animal Planet history and uh, behind something to do with Shark Week, because Shark Week is always a huge deal, too. I was talking to one of the producers and the directors from time, because I had to do all this stuff with them. I was like, I don't know. I feel like we should give them jerseys or something. We should give them stuff. Like, there's, like, other stuff that we could do. And then the producer was like, David, when something works perfectly, when something's better than you ever could have expected it to be, uh-huh. just leave it alone for a while. <laughs> you know, and they've, like, added little things. It's like, they had a kitten halftime show. They had hamsters and blimp. They had, like, lots of, like, silly things. Uh, really, it's the essence of, like, you know, the fire and the TV when you don't have a fireplace or something. It's just... It's like a YouTube video for like three hours uh, of cute puppy tricks. Puppiness. Super awesome. Hey, okay. So Super I'm, fun to do and not – yeah, give me I'm, a real question. I'm going to give you a real question. I'm rambling. I'm going back to my, my, my kiddos here. So they're all the same, you know, 18 okay. – actually, they're all from – they range probably from 18 to 22 who probably watch or listen. Oh my God, I was at a... I know you were. So if you, knowing what you know now and knowing where they are now, what's the piece of advice you'd give them? Oh man, you have all of the freedom and all of the accessibility in the world available to you. Uh, If you have an idea, it's the most important thing. Like, you should you should try everything. If someone's giving you an assignment, like you should try it. There's a lesson to be learned. But you should trust in your ideas and your and your like genuine interests because there are the the world has changed. Uh, and then, not that there are a lot of them that are doing it. There are a handful of people who make fortunes on social media. Mm-hmm. And there are a bunch of people who make you know who've like who learned to monetize it in a way that it's better than a regular job for them. Yep. And you guys are at a place where you have access to, you know, all of the things you need to sort of pursue that you social media gives you a voice where you can, you know, you can be your own journalist. You can be, um, you know, you, you can be anything you want. There's like a lot of people. I, I'm critical of him because he makes some big mistakes, but there's a guy named Sean King who lived in town. He was like a, became famous for his uh, activism after, during, after Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like, he's like blown up specifically because of things that he's put online. And he's made some like, real mistakes. He's got, you know, book deals, and he's doing commentary on news programs. And he's like, come, he's become brand, and it's just because he put the time into doing, you know, that thing, becoming the authority on that thing that he's interested in. Right. Um, you know, you guys should be, you know making your own content and it, i'm not saying you need to be a youtuber i'm saying that like 
the market is such that if you wanted to, for instance, like be a television host or be involved in travel or do any of those things, you can start right now making content in the area that surrounds you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it, it will resonate. You, you have all of the tools there. The single most important project that I have ever worked on and, and literally still working on, I started when I was a student at tech and I didn't show it to anyone for 10 years, which was maybe a mistake. But then when I did show it to people, you know, they're like, oh crap. And they viewed me differently and it opened doors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it all started when I was, you know, sleeping at Payne Hall and, uh, or sleeping at the Wesley Foundation. I don't know, I slept a lot of places. Uh, but, you know, if, if you, like, you can learn anything, all of the techniques. You have, have uh, classes where you can use all the things you're learning as products to show that you're growing mm -hmm. like you should all pitch me some ideas and i'll like spitball with you you want a dozen ways you can make that substantial um like literally no ideas are bad ideas uh really like that what i would do if i was in school now is i i would master all of like the all the knowledge I could about YouTube uh, because it's my personal favorite. Mm -hmm. Like there are other ones that are all good, and not that I think that YouTube is the be all end all because I do believe that there's going to be something else coming, and every one of these things plays a role. But YouTube is right now, and I would like I would probably try and make like I found an Instagram. Um, uh, I'll have to find it and send it to Billy. But I just stumbled upon that is uh, these beautiful photos, beautiful videos. They're super short, like ten seconds long, of uh, a guy using camera. Could potentially be GoPro. I don't know if there's a footage of it. It's really nice, but he's using a dome on the front of the camera, and he's shooting a ton of stuff in Alaska that are all really simple in clear water streams. He's doing this like split level, like coming from underwater and then coming up to a beautiful scene. And that's all it is. Mm -hmm. But they're stunning. And not all of them are. He's got how he's got on there. But the whole reason I tuned in this thing is because of a video that I saw of a rock falling. And the camera's falling at the same speed as the rock. And then the rock goes underwater, and then, you know, the air, you know, goes around it. The bubbles all go up, but it's super beautiful. And it's like a, a five-second clip because he's doing it in slow motion. Like, it really happened mm -hmm. super fast. After seeing that stuff, I started looking the guy up, and he's shooting all this stuff in Alaska. But there are a couple of other people who have totally co-opted his style, and they were doing all of this, like, travel social media in Iceland, mm -hmm. like ad campaigns. 
you're doing exactly what he's doing, you know, being on a boom, coming out of glacier water to waterfall in the background. And they're like five seconds long, but it's kind of the future of, in my opinion, the future of like what most of these companies are going to want to put out there. Something quick and beautiful. I have a friend who, uh, Tamron is a gear company. Um, yep. And my friend had come to me. He said, look, look I got a deal with Tamron. And they want me to shoot social videos. So I want you to help me shoot these videos. Uh, he's like, I'm getting $1,500 a video. And so uh, he had a meeting with him. And he's like, okay, what do you, what do you want? Like three videos for social Ten minute videos, then have they're like, no, we want fifteen second videos. It's like, what? How can we tell the big thirty second? Like one that be on Instagram Live. We want mm-hmm. just these little things. He's making fifteen hundred bucks a video. Like that's like. So he's making a thousand dollars a second. I don't know what, what does it add up. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's crazy. Come on. Or a hundred dollars, not a thousand dollars. He's making a dollars like, a second. Okay, hundred dollars. Yeah, hundred dollars. Yeah, that's pretty good money. Yeah. Now I don't know what's going to happen when he sends them like three hours worth of video, but uh, that, was, that was a joke, folks. Um, no, so there are a lot of possibilities out there. I, I really would um, constantly look forward to see because, like, the key with social media is. You know, if you can get in something early enough, mm-hmm. then you can, it's easier to be recognized. Right. You know, whatever. Now there's like a handful of people with like 20 million followers on uh, on YouTube and you can compete with them. You don't have to have that many followers, but, right. um, you know, it's harder, you know, and you also have to, I think the, another thing that's important is learning to repurpose content for every platform mm-hmm. like not that you have to put it on every platform but just understanding like oh if i'm shooting something for a client and i wanted to shoot you know whatever this interview with uh with billy mm-hmm. how do i shoot it so that i can provide them with more options than they're expecting how can i give them like a vertical video option how can I give them, you know, like right. what's going to be the thumbnail for the video thing? What what are all the ways it can be used? And if you guys learn that stuff, um, you know, you you have. I know you think that your time is. I think you think that you're so busy. You literally will never have more, more time than you have when you're in college. I know you don't want to hear that, but it's true though. It's you have like you have so much freedom and you know it's kind of up to you to go all right i'm going to maximize this and you know master something and like me me following around the photographers that i think were the best imitation especially in the beginning is a hundred percent acceptable uh i know there's the book what's name uh austin Kleon's book uh steel like an artist Mm-hmm. That the basic idea is that like there aren't there are very few real original ideas 
on the telephone. Uh, there are very few real original ideas. And so most of the, most of the headway that we make is from imitating other people. Mm -hmm. And then through that, you like, you know, figure things out. The other night when I was trying to figure out how to, how to make all those videos on one, uh, one premiere page, like I was struggling because I was just following the directions, but it wasn't, wasn't clicking with me like exactly what I was doing. And, you know, I'm just mimicking what I'm seeing on YouTube. But then when I went to sleep and woke up the next day and it was crystal clear in my mind, mm -hmm. I then came up with exactly, because I've been trying to think of like what I wanted to do to make a sizzle reel for a while. Because mm -hmm. I've got a ton of video and I'm not a, I'm not a great editor, you know. I figure out how to put it together in a way that it's like, interesting and i can go to people and not go oh yeah i'm not that great at editing uh, mm -hmm. but through that thing when i woke up the next morning i was putting it together i then had a vision for like the direction i wanted my uh sizzle reel to go mm -hmm. so you just start mimicking things and then you know things will Things will pop up. You'll come up with ideas that will be either unique or different or whatever, just through the process of doing the work. Right. Got to do the work, kids. But also, call me, send me an email, text me, bounce ideas off me. I'll tell you if I think they're terrible. I probably hey, tell people how to contact you. Terrible. How can they find you? Uh, you can you can email me at hello at datescotthallway.com. That's H-E-L-L-O at davidscottholloway.com. Yep. You can uh, send me um, an Instagram message also. Instagram is at davidscottholloway. Uh, and then uh, if you email me, then I'll send you my number if you want to text me something awkward in the middle of the night. Cool beans. So I rambled a lot here, kids, but uh, you've got a lot of potential and a lot of... Uh, Freedom, a lot of options. I go crazy. I think we're going to do this again at some point. I think I want, I want to go ahead and cut this guy's brain. Do what? Say that again. I was like, this guy's brain. I was telling him, pick your brain. Pick your brain. Yeah, lots of brain picking going on. Yeah, I, um, I've just decided, yeah, we've got enough that I'm just going to bring you back on as like a regular. You're just going to be the regular. Yeah, let's do it. It's just regular. So I got to set my, I think the wanna, other thing is. I want to sneak in. Do I want to sneak in when Alice is talking. We can do it. I can just bring you both on at the same time. That's you know, technology works that way. I can don't, no, don't don't tell her that I'm here. Don't I'll, tell her that I'm gonna be. I'm not. I'll just, oh, I'll just yeah. I'll just invite you both, and I'll just like, boop, and then suddenly Dave's on the screen too. Yeah, I still Perfect. want to do that idea that I have where I just go on a road trip and I go visit old students, <laughs> and then I just put you in the seat, and you're yeah. just that, and you don't actually have to say anything. You just just in the back. I, I want to do color commentary. <laughs> there's so many wait i don't even know what it's there's a there's a instagram uh that i love so much and it is a guy who is doing super funny commentary over street fights over what he's so funny it's over street fights he's got videos oh. find all night looking at street fights yeah and then he just does color commentary over so 
funny and i really feel like like it's such a it's such a goofy idea but i've i've definitely watched every single thing that i've ever found of his and i feel like that's the sort of idea literally anyone can take he's not he's not making the video content he's sourcing it off you know mm -hmm. there's a million you can just find any ridiculous thing and like find a way to to reprint it uh, and elevate it, and it's amazing. So, all right, well, I'm gonna we still it. haven't talked about last night. Oh, we haven't. Or let's go ahead and try it. Like, yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, what are we like? Uh, we're like at two and a half hour. Oh, we're at two hours. We're good. We're just fine. Oh my god. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, the only, the only thing that's concerning me on this is I'm like I'm like how's the audio going to sound because there's the cutting out a lot but you know what it, it kind of it goes in phases like oh. it goes it gets bad and then it gets good again so right now oh. we're in a good spot so let's do a quick okay. it's because it's timely let's do a quick wrap up of your you know the uh, debate last night in the first Trump Biden debate what was your what was your takeaway so it's uh, actually been in a, at a uh, presidential debate. <laughs> Yeah, it it hurts so much. I I've been to, uh, I've been to several of them, and I've been to dozens of candidate debates. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when there's still well Democrat trying to become right. president. And the thing is, generally those people like they might get aggressive like in stage a bit, but they actually like each other. They respect each other. Right. They, uh, you know, they. They might say a snarky thing because, you know, it gives them some points. But last night was so painful. Uh, honestly, I feel like the only solution, first of all, I'm embarrassed as American. Like, okay, the whole world could watch. Like, yeah, this, this is my quick take on the presidency. I think that I think Joe Biden uh, can be a very good president. Uh, he might not be a marvelous leader, but he is a thoughtful person who knows what he's doing. I personally believe that uh, there should be like a general cap on how old a person can be to be president. Because, don't mean to sound ageist here, but people slow down and people... I believe that if a person were between... 50 and 65, that's like my optimal presidential age. Someone who's lived enough to be wise yep. and still can be super sharp about everything. I mean, they have, it's not really fair because. Well, they have a bottom Trump, age. Because you can't, you know, you can't run for president until you're right. 35, so there could be a top age. Right. Yeah. I mean, there should be. Even, I mean, there's some some differences like uh you know maybe women physically age better take care of themselves but like elizabeth warren you know is the same age as those two yahoos and she doesn't come across as like uh kook no um, no she yeah she's still the thing is, healthy the thing is uh with last night i feel like it was not produced well in like in the other ones, you know they they'll turn people's mics off. Yeah, 
why did they not turn his mic off when it wasn't his turn? I I don't like. I don't know. Yeah, because that obviously. Like, okay, it's your turn. Like, I'm sure they'll do that at the next. If they, right, they'll if another one happens. Like, if, if both those guys don't go, screw it. I'm not doing that. I'm 100. Like, I think they'll. I'm a big favor of you know, them, better, but, you know, shot callers would be good too. You know, you get one warning. Right, right. <laughs> but it's it's like it's embarrassing to think about, like. You know, first of all, there were a ton of lies said last night that are, you know, easily provable. But it doesn't matter because I, I honestly don't think that I don't think that there is a person in the country who's uh, who changed their decision last night. Right. I don't think anyone was like, well, you got me. I think everyone was just shaking head and sad for america yeah i i just sort of equated it as, as you know the the thanksgiving dinner where you've got a couple of uncles that got drunk and just got in a fight over dinner and right. you know one of them's pointing a turkey right. at the other and um yeah because i have a friend in australia who started yeah but there's like one and he, he you know, started what i said i've got a buddy in australia and he's he was messaging me he's like it's reality tv for them um we're just yeah. watching it and like you people are insane and you know this is coming from that's what Aussie. that's what trump wants it to be yeah i think he totally wants it to be real the chaos thing i think of things in more narrative form now um his strategy is chaos it's always been chaos and i think yeah. that works like when people sort of get you know you talk about a status quo and sometimes you need to like you know mix things up to you know evolve to the next thing uh, the difference is at some point you've got to, like the chaos can't hang around forever. Like if storytelling, you can't have conflict forever or suspense forever. There's a point you've got to have some sort of resolution where you bring things back. And I think he's just kind of continuing the chaos. And that's the part that's starting to wear thin on a lot, a lot more people than it used to. At least for me. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, it just Same. felt... It was just a bunch of... Well, we got a month left. Let's see how it goes. So excited. So. <laughs> I I feel like, um, you know, I, I've, I've distanced myself from politics for this cycle. And I feel like, um, you know, I mean, it's hard. Everyone sort of distanced. But I also feel like I don't know that I have the emotional energy to, you know, to deal with Trump. Like, if, if I were, like, they're doing campaign stuff right now, it's just like, come on, please. Like, you can be opinionated, and you can be mean, and be whatever. But, like, can you also just be honest? Right, just for a minute. Like, I don't have to agree with you on anything. Like, just Give me something straight here so I don't have to. Yeah, it's that sort of you're waiting for that moment. You're waiting for that moment, of, moment of sincerity that just doesn't ever seem to show up. So, I don't know. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. 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 Well, sorry. Sorry to all the Trump fans who are watching, but you guys are wrong. <laughs> it is terrible. Oh, there you go. There's this is fake, terrible fake news. Hey, that's that's let me ask you that real quick quick question. As someone who's you know, you hung out at CNN for a while. 
Like whenever you like, yeah. what would, what is your diagnosis of the state of modern media? It's like mainstream media anyway. Um, well, it, it's, it's a, it's a mess. So did you watch that documentary? What's the documentary called? You watched it, right? Which, which one? I think you're the first person I saw that posted about it. The documentary on Facebook. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, what's it called? The, um, you're talking about the, I haven't watched uh, it yet. But the, the social media one on a, the, the um, yes, social dilemma. The social dilemma. The social yep. dilemma. Yep. Kids, all sit down and watch it. Yep. Uh, I think that that is uh, like ultimately steering uh, all media, mainstream media too, because most people, you know, like I had a discussion with my dad the last time I was home. It's like arguing about how well they're you know, all full of bullshit. They're all whatever. No, they're not. There's truth out there, but it's being clouded because you get all of your news through Facebook headlines. Right. He doesn't watch the news. He doesn't. He doesn't have. He doesn't even have a, a like a news brand that he trusts. Right. Everything that he gets. All incoming. Like he's not even reading stories, you know. Mm-hmm. And my mom had this conversation with her where she posts something on Facebook that sounds super crazy and sensational. And I have to like, go snoop it and whatever. And I have to talk to my mom about look. This is easy to like. like Little, uh-huh. Oh, I, I didn't hear any of the last one. If you're shocked by somebody, you could almost. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was really excited because your your face looks so right. passionate, and I'm just like, oh, I can't hear a thing he's saying right now. Yeah. I had I had a very uh, no. I was just on. saying that. I had I had a very similar conversation with one of my boat neighbors last week. I live, you know, and I've got a lot of Trump friends as fans. You know, I've got a bunch of Trump fans as friends. You know, I can I can walk that line and hang with that crowd. And but yeah, we were having the same conversation. You know, and he's seventy something year old guy, and he's you know, there's and he said he said the same thing. There's you know, there's no good journalism out there anymore. And I was like, yeah, actually there is. I was like, but there's I said there's just a lot of other bad stuff pretending to be journalism. And I said they have really good websites and it looks authentic. But it's not. Right. So. Right. And the problem that that also those stories get sucked into those stories become mainstream news because then you constantly question like, I don't know, I can't even think of any stupid story right now, but, you know, it winds up being part of the thing that they have to discuss. Yeah. Somebody like Trump just standing on stage, interrupting with lie after lie after lie. Come on, folks. Like, honestly, who, <laughs> if you ask yourself, that's like the thing that a lot of people like always say, like, oh, I'd, you know, I'd vote for this person because I can imagine myself sitting down and having a beer with them. I have been in great proximity to Donald Trump many times. Uh-huh. And every time it's been obvious that he is the fucking worst person in the room. Yeah. Like 
ask yourself who you want at your Thanksgiving dinner. Like fucking Tony Blowhard or, you know, like an honest, genuine person who has maybe made some mistakes much like you have, but who is a real human Mm -hmm. uh, with real concerns for, you know, other people with real empathy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I feel why like... don't the left why don't the left have crazy assassins? I don't know. I don't know. Where's the that? other thing that I think I've been I was writing a thing about this probably like the last thing. Uh-huh. But uh you know, a couple of people have talked to me about like my work on the far right and uh-huh. Like, oh, you, you know, you should be working right now. Do you feel like you're like missing a window? And 100% I don't because 100% I believe that it will get worse. Oh, yeah, do you? So, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the if, if Biden wins and, you know, the government, you know, finds some sort of stability, some sort of normalcy, uh, doesn't matter is when these organizations broken down. Like organizations are less of a threat when they're an organization. Right. When they break down and they're individual people who feel desperate and who feel trapped. Like, you know, all these people are empowered right now because they have, you know, they don't, they say he's not their guy. They say, you know, but he's the closest thing that they have. Right. Uh, you know, once he's gone, it's, it's just reinforcing to them that there are mainstream people who can buy into their ideas. It's enough to... So like, yeah, Trump is proof that they're mainstream. Go ahead. No, go ahead. It's enough to what? I would just say it's... Or just that idea. There's a delay. I, I was just... <laughs> It's enough that it like the, the the kind of fringe ideas have gotten enough of a platform lately that they've they've started to merge back into some of the mainstream thought. It gets into you get enough of this, and then suddenly they're like, "Well, maybe they have, maybe you know, maybe these guys have a point." And then it gets talked on, you know, whatever. Well, and then the algorithms are reinforced in the. In the in the short doc that I did for NBC, uh, Billy Roper, famous uh, uh, racist, uh, explains what his role at like right now is, mm-hmm. and he says that his job is to say the most inflammatory, furthest right things, so he can he can push the conversation so far to the right. He's like, he doesn't expect many people to buy into what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But he pushes it so far to the right that then when other people will come in and fill in that space, you know, on the right, mm-hmm. not quite as far as he is, but further from the left, then they seem more acceptable. Right. He's, he's just, he's moved the standard over. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that's his whole strategy, and it seems to work. Hmm. Yep. I don't know. Kids, go get a job. Have a Facebook and fix Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah, just go or just go make the new Facebook. You know, that's uh, that's one of the things I used to tell them. I was like, look, you know, some of the biggest inventions that you know dictate your life now are created by people that are your age. Um, so get busy, mm-hmm. make some innovation happen. Yeah, fix America. And it's not as it's not as difficult as you really think it. It is on some level, like you know, Casey Neistat. Um, he had this app, Bean, mm-hmm. which I don't know if any of you downloaded it. It is not very good. Uh, it was never very good. Uh-huh. But Casey is a huge, uh, you know, huge person on YouTube, and he was trying to develop this thing. He's full of great ideas, uh, but he he's not a programmer. He's not like a Help develop in what is you making money doing this other thing, but invest it in this project. And then he sold it to Sin for twenty million dollars. Mm-hmm. They didn't hire Casey like the like, Oh, CNN paid him twenty million dollars. Said no. No, didn't hire him. He was going to do some online stuff with him. What they did was they purchased his app. Mm-hmm. And you know, some you know, a dude had an idea about. He wound up camp until he found someone who helped him make it. And then, you know, they made it. They made it and it flopped. You know, CNN shelved it. Mm-hmm. They spent all that money. Casey's not even anymore like being his not anymore. Mm-hmm. So you know, there, there, there are ways. Just now, reach out to people who are doing things who have skills that you have. All right, and on that, I think we'll wrap it up because the, the connection, the connection is getting bad again. So I'm just like, I'm, I'm probably gonna have to edit some of this out. So I'm just. Whatever it happens to be, we're going to bring you back on. It's the point. <laughs> we're going to pick up like, all right, I'm going to. What, what? Let's do it. Yeah. So I think I'm going to get a set up another one in my. We can just start up. Hey, maybe we can just. We get should together. start like a ten minute podcast and ourselves a subject to talk about every week for ten minutes. That'll work. I think I'm gonna set. I'm gonna set up another um, okay. quote unquote studio in my office at Tech because I have better internet there. I don't have the fabulous cabin background, but, yeah. but I have, now I've just got, you know, I've got an office attack and I'll just put a soundboard in and I've got everything yeah. plugged right. in and put in a microphone in. I just don't have the cool ambience of the cab. I would just recreate that. I, would... I could. Yeah. I just create a plywood. No, I would wall, like a fake wall. It's a fake wall behind me. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> let's do that. I'll, maybe I'll just go full blown pirate <laughs> at the cabin and I'll just, it's like you're on a ship. So, all right, Dave. It's been fun. Thanks, thanks. All right, so I will catch up with you later, and then we have other things to discuss at some point about making stuff, more stuff. That's true. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks. That's right, right. All right, Dave. Have a lo- yeah. lovely day. All right. Bye. This is the last song for the night, and um, this one goes out to Tally Elizabeth Gale if she's listening, and uh, we hope she is. It's called Farewell. Bye-bye.
Listening to Monster Zero this evening. Hey, whoever just tried to call, sorry I couldn't get to the phone. It doesn't matter because I wouldn't have been able to hear you anyway. It was really loud. Um, but Monster Zero is probably going to be tearing down pretty soon. I mean, they're tearing their stuff down. And uh, if anyone wants to talk to them, call us up at 964-0806. Or if you just want to yell at them, call them for that too. Um, we'll yeah, Bill. S- see ya. Bye. <laughs>